Hello and welcome. My name is Fran McKeown and I'm the host of the Off The Lead podcast. Last night I spoke to Anthony Murphy of Mythical Ireland. Anthony is a fascinating character, evident in every moment of this recording. I'll make sure to share all the relevant links to his social media platforms where I would encourage you all to be guided down a Mythical Ireland-shaped rabbit hole. And as always, if you're enjoying the kind of conversations that I'm having on the Off The Lead podcast, remember, if you're only listening, you're missing the entire point. So get talking, sharing, liking and subscribing. For in order for evil to thrive, good men and women need do nothing. So without any further preamble, I give you my conversation with Anthony Murphy of Mythical Ireland. And we're live. Anthony, before we came out to the tunnel to start recording, I basically asked you, you know, when did when did this all start in Ireland? Were there were there pre or proto humans, were there Neanderthals? And you mentioned the Ice Age. And I said, Listen, we won't we won't get into it, we'll wait till we get out to the tunnel and start talking about it. What did the Ice Age got to do with anything? Uh well the Ice Age is a very significant event in Irish history because Around 10,000 BC, so around 12,000 years ago, um, the Irish landscape was very um, dramatically altered by the ice, but not just the landscape, the humanscape, because, um, well, the archaeologists and the anthropologists tell us that there was no human life in Ireland at the end of the Ice Age. So you had very significant uh, sheets of ice, which are carving out the landscape, and then all the meltwater washing everything away. So I don't know... Um, I'm not an expert on this, but I don't know what happened to everybody. Presumably a lot of people died with the cold, uh, etc. Some people may have fled the country and gone abroad somewhere. All we know is that pretty much there was no human life in Ireland uh, from about 10,000 years ago to about 8,000 years ago. So if you go back, you know, the first uh, evidence of life in Ireland, human life in Ireland, is from Mount Sandell, which is near uh, Coleraine on the north coast. And that's around 8,000 uh, years ago. Sorry, 8,000 BC, I think. Um, and before that, nothing. And we're told that those first Mesolithic, that's Middle Stone Age, so this is pre the arrival of new, uh, farming and the builders of Newgrange, we're told that um, they would have come from Europe or m- actually the most likely influx, first influx after the Ice Age might have come from Wales or the Isle of Man or Scotland. And that's purely based on proximity, basically. Yeah. So, in effect, what I'm saying is we're all British in origin. Of course. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that'll wind <laughs> up a certain... a head-blowing uh, <laughs> fact for us to start with, you of know? Of course, of course. <laughs> but just on, on the timeline, like 10,000 years ago is fucking no time at all like at all it's a very short time span like uh, a lot of people have this idea of the Irish as a very ancient race I think we've been obviously because we're an island nation we've been separated from the mainland uh, of Europe for a long time of course Uh, and we are different and we're very unique in our sort of culture and in our outlook yes all that is true but (laughs) um, we're not genetically unique I don't think um and of course, lots of studies have been done about that. Um, but we're very young as a people, you know. Um, I mean, there, there, there. You can trace life on the African continent, for instance, back a um, hundred, two hundred thousand years at the right. Well, you, a far further back than that, probably. But in Ireland, 
you see anything that existed in Paleolithic times in the old Stone Age, pre-Ice Age, was carved away by the ice or washed away by the meltwaters. So the problem is, uh, you'll, you'll often have heard, uh, absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Yes. And so the fact of the matter is that there is a, a paucity of remains from pre-Ice Age times. Very little evidence. One piece of evidence is a 300,000-year-old piece of flint that was found by Professor Frank Mitchell, uh, who's uh, the late Professor Frank Mitchell, who was, uh, uh, well, he was many things, an anthropologist and uh, a geologist. He, he lived at Townley Hall outside Drogheda. He found a flake uh, at a, a quarry in Drogheda at Mel, which he's, he reckoned had been worked by human hands about 300,000 years ago. It's in the National Museum. 300,000? Yeah, 300,000. So, like, there was undoubtedly uh, human existence here a long time ago. But the fact is that the Irish people, as we currently exist, were first seeded, as it were. The birth of the Irish people began only um, about 8,000 BC, so about 10,000 years ago. OK, so whoever was knocking around on the island of Ireland were long gone and yeah. like, like the, on, on them being long gone like what kind of timeline are we talking about for the ice age like was uh, it you know a thousand actually, years or yeah i'm not really i'm not really too au fait with that and so any time so i i should probably say at the outset i'm not um an academic so i'm not formally trained in any of this stuff i just happen to be really interested in it and i've spent 20 years of my life researching it um not entirely sure uh, i think several thousand years can you be an academic or an expert in what you kind of specialize in because there's so many disciplines? I mean, there's, there's you know, mythology, there's cosmology, there's anthropology, geology, and God knows there's probably half a dozen different ologies in there. Yeah, a To be an expert, <laughs> um, you know. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a good point there. And one of the things about Irish archaeology specifically is that uh, Irish archaeologists don't learn anything about astronomy. And I think those who are dealing with prehistoric uh, culture in Ireland should have a knowledge of astronomy because a lot of the sites are, uh, let's say, cosmologically aligned or uh, inspired, you know. Um, so Newgrange would obviously be the best example of that. Um, in some countries of the world, archaeologists do have a good working knowledge of astronomy. Um, but as, then, sorry, as part of the curriculum, or just as because, part of their training? Yes, yeah, yeah, because it's important in terms of the overall interpretation of sites. And the other thing then is mythology, which is the jury is very much out on in Irish academia. So you have some archaeologists who are very cognizant of the mythology. Actually, some who have written about descriptions in mythology that may or may not tie in with the archaeological evidence and that's a very interesting area of research but an awful lot of archaeologists kind of avoid it you know so for instance um the the very uh, eminent and talented and very famous uh, professor george ogan who excavated nouth for the best part of 40 years uh, a wonderful man a very nice man actually i, I know him and actually used to go to nouth while he was there and uh, got on very well with him. But he, he he has produced six volumes of books about 
the excavations of Nauth, the latest of which is about the Passage Tomb archaeology, and it's a 900-page tome. <laughs> it's massive. This thing is like a doorstep. It's huge. A very, very impressive collection of technical data and descriptions of various aspects of the archaeology. Everything from the source of the stones and the, the makeup of the stones to, um, you know, the, the dating of the bones and all of this stuff. But I have to say, I'm disappointed. Not a single mention of the mythology of Nauth and where Nauth got its name from, which is spoken about in the the medieval manuscripts, you know, the Dinshanicus, the old stories that tell us about the eminent places. And I thought that a little disappointing, even though the work is tremendous, tremendous. It's basically a lifetime's work um, and uh, parts of it are tremendously technical as well so it's not the sort of thing you would sit down with at night intending to read from cover to cover before you go to sleep <laughs> just put it that way um but for instance michael o'kelly who excavated newgrange the very first thing he speaks about in his book about newgrange which i think was written in the uh, early 1980s was the mythology of newgrange and the stories of newgrange you know the oldest traditions of it and i liked the fact that he opened with that because um, it's very easy to discard myth as having no meaning, but in actual fact, my life's work has really swung towards mythology as being probably a crucial element of the interpretation of these sites. You know, absolutely. Well, I mean, it was a like even from myself, who was a to say I have a rudimentary understanding of mythology is an is an understatement. But at, even I get the idea that the pyramids were built to you know worship gods or, or whatever it was and, and Newgrange the, the same to a, a greater or lesser degree but certainly theology and mythology and everything else was the real driving force behind building these things in the first place so to study them without having an underlying understanding of that would seem I don't know missing m- missing something if to say the least like. yeah well the, w- the way I look at it is um, so the archaeologists um now, don't get me wrong, I'm not here to spend the, the interview bashing archaeology. Oh, no, not, not at, at all. all. Absolutely. And in fact, archaeology has been probably the single most important um, discipline in teaching us what society and what life might have been like in the Neolithic. Uh, however, um, it doesn't provide a full scope or, or a full answer to all of the issues. And so, for instance, archaeologists have a term for this type of monument. They call it a passage tomb. Now, a passage tomb is a very functional description, and even archaeologists will admit that it falls short of describing all of the functions of the likes of Newgrange and Nauth and Douth, which are the most famous examples of that type of monument. In fact, they're the biggest. There's nothing bigger than them. There's nothing grander than them. Um, but in in the myths, these are called she S I fada D H E, or in old Irish sheed S I fada D. So there's there's a word for these places that doesn't translate easily into English. It's been translated as fairy mound, or you know a burial mound or whatever. But uh, I think the word she is far uh, more has has far more gravity, and I think when you strip uh, a place of what it would have been known as. I think probably to the builders so there's this difficulty with the language because according to the experts Irish doesn't go that far back 
we didn't speak Irish when we were building Newgrange. And what, we, sorry, what, would, what we, did they think we, we did speak? We, we spoke what they called Proto-Indo-European, which is like this, you know... A step up from grunts. Well, <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not, again, I'm not a, a, an expert in linguistics. All I know is that I am told that the words don't go back, but you see some of the, the myths, I think, go back, which is why it's important. So, around the 12th century, the Cistercians arrived and they had a very big influence in what happened here in conjunction with the Normans. So, the Cistercians set up. Uh, Mellifont Abbey. And sorry to cut across, but who who or what were the Cistercians, or where did they come from? Or just they're, well, I think they're like... originally a French order. Okay. Um, and they uh, set up Mellifont, I think, on the instructions of Saint Malachy. So they were Christians. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. These are Christian monks, you yes. know. And they became very influential. So they took all the land all the way down to the Boyne, and. They set up what were called granges or farms, you know, to feed themselves and to keep their community sustained. Yeah. And as a result of that, there are several place names in existence right now, townland names, that are actually Cistercian in origin. So I'll give you some examples. Yeah, Newgrange. Newgrange is one. Sheepgrange, Roughgrange, Littlegrange. These are all place names in the vicinity of the Bend of the Boyne that are Cistercian. So... When people go to Newgrange and they see the magnificence and the splendour of it, um, I don't think they appreciate the fact that the the name Newgrange is actually a 12th century. It's only 800 years old. Yeah, um, of course. The original name of Newgrange, according to the manuscripts, was Sheed and Broga, or She on Vru, as we might call it now. And it was also known as Sheed Machanog or Brug Machanog. And Machanog was Angus Og, who was the uh, the son of the chief god. Uh, who was said to have been born there in a miraculous conception, as it were, an immaculate conception of sorts. Anyway, I I I've, I know I've digressed a little. Not bit. at I all. Apo- the, I apologise if the, the viewer ev- is or the listener is being dragged Not left, right, and centre. Ev- every episode has been the exact same. We we go off on tangents and down rabbit holes. I think the main the main point was that um, I don't think it is prudent to not ignore, but to to not factor the mythology into your interpretation of a site. Yeah, of course. No, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Uh, while at the same time, yes, absolutely. As I said uh, earlier, archaeology has probably been the key discipline in terms of teaching us about things that we just simply didn't know about before there were excavations. So it's very valuable on the one hand, but it's not... Let's say the archaeologist doesn't have a premium on the interpretation of sites and if you read an archaeological tome about any prehistoric site in Ireland you've got to accept that this isn't the final word yeah no absolutely do you think that we need a new a new discipline nearly Mm. like a a new ology (laughs) a combine ology (laughs) an all sorts ology yeah maybe um yeah, but then having not been academically trained in any of this, I don't know what it's like to go through university and study anthropology or mythology or cosmology or whatever. All I know is that um, I think the whole reason Anthony Murphy and Mythical Ireland exists is precisely because there was a gap in the knowledge that um, hasn't been recognised or filled in by academia. Um 
you know, that there's a whole mythical and cosmological aspect to the prehistoric monuments that is not fully recognised, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it came up in my last, uh, in the last episode with, with Ivor. We were mentioning, I think it was Gobekli Tepe and even the pyramids and different places, which all would have been, maybe not so much now, but certainly originally um, excavated and studied by foreigners, say, you know, Germans and English and Europeans mostly, I think, yeah. who didn't know the local mythology or didn't know the, just the nuances of what it's like to live in a scorching hot desert or, you know, closer to the equator or to have a rainy season and li- little things like that. And without that kind of local knowledge, which you obviously have, because, sorry, are you, are you born and bred in the Boyne yeah, Valley? Yeah, I was or? born in Drogheda. And li- I've lived there all my life, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you have that almost insider knowledge. Um, yeah, but then... A lot of my knowledge is as a result of the fact that I'm a bookworm, you know. Yeah, more so than a genuine tradition, you know. Yes. Like we don't have to go that far back um, until to a time when um, the oral tradition carried a lot of information from one generation to the next. So the folklore, for instance, the stories that were carried down from generation to generation. And that started dying out in in the la- in the twentieth century, which is why the folklore commission was set up because it was recognised that the the uh, the folk tradition was dying and they needed to record as much of it as possible. That was a fabulous effort by a fledgling state that had no money, cash strapped. So you had the likes of um, Seamus Ennis, the famous piper from uh, the Knoll in Dublin, uh, who cycled out into Connemara um, on his bicycle to collect stories and music from people there who when they passed were going to bring a whole load of tradition with them i think he interviewed one gentleman in a place called is it glanschke i can't i can never remember what its exact word something to do with um it's like glenishka anyway this particular gentleman was a, mu- a musician he played the whistle the penny whistle you know and he, he, he recorded 127 songs from this man that were sort of local to that area. Yeah, and would have been lost otherwise. And that this man could play without ever reading or without having written any of this down as musical notation. Yes. And Ennis was there to to do that, you know, to, 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 to actually write it down, to try and save it, as it were. Yeah, immortalise it. Yeah, knowing that these people were all going to die and that, they weren't passing it on anymore, you know. So that like that whole aspect of our culture um has died away. So I suppose it's it's a little bit of a a disclaimer on my part that I don't come from a genuine tradition. My tradition is more academic, as in what I expound in my books and what I talk about in my videos and on my website. Uh, it's all stuff that I've learned. Um I haven't been taught most of it, uh, sort of, um, uh, you know, there isn't like an Aboriginal um, myth or storyteller in the Boyne Valley. I know what you mean, yeah. You know, because that... You're not a 10th generation storyteller. No, no, no. I I know, I have to say, I don't apologise for that. Because just because you haven't picked it up directly from uh, an ancestor source, as it were, doesn't mean it's not genuine. Of course. Um, the problem is a lot of this stuff has sort of languished in books and on vellum and manuscripts in museums and collections all around the place. Um, and it is a little bit inaccessible, you know. Um, Absolutely. Like there's a fair amount of uh, popularised 
uh, translations of works and that. So if you really wanted to study it, you could get into it in a big way, you know, um, as I have done. And I'm still literally, literally 20 years down the line. I feel as if I've only scratched the surface, quite genuinely. No, I'd rather believe such it. a huge, huge body of mythology and folklore in this country. Huge, enormous, almost unquantifiable. Yeah. And I think bigger than the classical world and bigger than any other collection of myths and folklore from around the world. Yeah, and I think it's fast. It's, it's fascinating to me that there are people like you that's reading the academic journals and dusting the, dusting the cobwebs off books that no, none of the rest of us are ever really going to look at, realistically, not en masse at least, and putting it into books. So your books are presumably for a, a wide audience. They're not for, oh, yeah. you know, academics. They're for no. the general public, say. no. You don't. You don't need to be a specialist to read them. Of course, it might help. <laughs> like so, in the case of my first book, Island of the Setting Sun. I love that name, by the way. That's yeah, class. yeah. Well, that's that's from mythology, really. I mean, that's from the the arrival of the Milesians who came to take Ireland from the Tuatha who are the gods who are said to have built Newgrange, Nowth, and Douth. And the Milesians came from Spain to take Ireland from the Tuatha and their spiritual figurehead was a man called Amergin. And according to tradition, he landed on the estuary of the Boyne and planted his foot on the on the shore as the first of the Milesian arrivers to officially sort of declare it, I suppose, for the Milesians. And he said, what land? He said, who but I knows the place where the sun sets? Who but I knows the ages of the moon? What land is better than this island of the setting sun? And of course, it, it didn't take me long to realise that, you know, this is like the Japan of the West. Yes, absolutely. You know, yeah. in the Orient, you have the land of the rising sun. Yes. And here on the on the far side of the continent, because, you know, the continent of Eurasia stretches all the way from, say, uh, Portugal and Spain, all the way west to, to China, Vladivostok and the, the western city or the eastern cities of China. And then next up, Japan. And in the case of the western side of Europe, next up, well, Britain and Ireland. Um yeah, so uh, <laughs> I think that's, yeah, it's got a mythical aspect to it. The point was, I think we were talking about, you know, whether people needed to be an expert. Not really, but definitely with the first book, it would help if you had a knowledge of astronomy. Okay. It, it, definitely, I found the feedback is from people who know something about astronomy, it's easier to get through. If you, know, if you know nothing about astronomy, it's a little bit more difficult. And when you say know something about astronomy, I mean... I, I'm afraid to say I do, do you know, kind of <laughs> give, give, given the company, but like, I know I, I get that the, the I'm not the, talking about advanced stuff. Now. Yeah, so I mean, put it this way: I would have a, a maybe a slightly above rudimentary understanding. I understand that the, the moon goes around the Earth, the Earth, go, and the rest of the planets go around the sun. The sun uh, goes around the black hole, presumably at the center of our galaxy, the Milky Way. It's barreling through space along with a couple of hundred billion yeah. other... Well, the ancients didn't know a lot of that. Of course. But, but the more rudimentary stuff. But what more am I missing then? Because the, on, on the moon in particular, I wouldn't yeah. be great. The moon is probably the biggest one, actually. Yeah, and that's the one that I think that most yeah. people are least... Like the moon goes around the Earth uh, once every 27 point something days and it goes from, say, if you see a full moon tonight, um, the next time you see a full moon is 29 and a half days. So... There's two separate periods. One is the period it takes the moon to go from the, say, the background stars. So, say, the constellation Aries around the zodiac back to Aries takes 27 and a half days. Okay. But if the full moon is in Aries tonight, while the moon will return to Aries in 27.5 days, it won't be full for another two days after that. So each full moon 
arrives in a different constellation. And trying to tie in the lunar year with the solar year is a significant aspect of ancient astronomy, not just in Ireland, but actually in all, in all cultures around the world. And every culture did it. And that knowledge, in fact, was still existent among unlearned, un, not unlearned, unread uh, people who couldn't read and write, Irish peasants in the 18th century. People knew about the complicated movements of the moon and the 19-year metonic cycle and the eclipse intervals and the e-pact, which is how Easter is calculated. Do you know about Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after I, the vernal equinox? Yeah, well, it's tied to an astronomical date. Yes. And, of course, that a lot of people think that Easter was a prehistoric festival anyway, long before Christianity, which shouldn't come as any great surprise because Christmas, after all, is very strongly tied in with the winter solstice and the birth of the new sun. (laughs) Oh, absolutely, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Um, So that's probably the one that's missing. Uh, And the reason I think it's missing, well, the sort of astronomy we get taught today doesn't teach you that because you don't need to know it now because you have a clock and you you have all sorts of ways of telling you what time it is. Um, the natural way you don't need to know it of anymore of course presumably the people at the time a bit, let's say Newgrange and the, the early people they would have had to have been particularly in tune with the moon for the um, the tides for yeah. co- the comings yeah, and absolutely. going out of the Boyne estuary and that so yeah, it would yeah. have been much more of a well there you go there's Armagin who's the leader of the Milesian expedition which sailed so a Spanish armada of the prehistoric world yeah. according, according to the annals about 1700 BC, uh, so Bronze Age, if you believe that it's a historical record of an invasion, which I don't think it is. Okay. Um, It's a mythical invasion. But there are, of course, parallels in what really happened in Ireland. We are, as I said earlier, uh, a maritime nation because we're an island. Of course. We, until Dublin Airport was built, the only way in and out of Ireland was on a boat. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, when you put it like that, yeah, absolutely. So we have an extraordinary maritime history and prehistory, even down to the people who built the great monuments, who fetched the curbstones, the giant curbstones for Newgrange and Nouth, um, some of them weighing five tonnes. There's a mean weight of about three tonnes, which is the weight of an Asian elephant. And they all had to be brought, strapped to the underside of barges down the coast from Clare Head and up the Boyne to the bend of the Boyne. No and mean then, feet. No. And, and then absolutely. out of the boat and yeah. across. A 97 of, of them at Newgrange and then another probably 100 large structural stones. Well, actually, I think the total, uh, it's in my other book, Newgrange Monument Immortality. I think there's about 400 large structural stones at Newgrange alone. And that's basically 400 journeys up and down the coast and up and down the river. And is there, or have you, say, a, an estimate for the type of, like, the, the volume of, or the body of people that was involved? Like, what, no. what kind of figures are we talking? Even ballpark? It's very, yeah, we see it's very, it's very difficult. Uh, and the re- uh, there's a lot of reasons it's difficult. And, of course, um, the archaeologists rightly hedge their bets on this. The first thing is, it's very important to say, is that we don't have any evidence of large-scale community at Newgrange in terms of habitation. So, in plain English, what does that mean? It means that we haven't found where they lived they, yeah. didn't, they didn't live in the in the in the mounds, because the mounds were clearly for a very sacred, you know, uh, cosmological, spiritual, um, uh, mortuary function. So the the equivalent of churches to a degree these it's days. Something similar, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we don't we haven't found large scale, like for instance at Nouth there was evidence of a pre passage mound house, an early Neolithic house which might have dated to about 
6,000 years ago to about 4,000 BC. But we don't have any, we haven't found, did they live in a village or, you know? Yeah, yeah. Where, where, where did the community built this actually live? So it becomes very difficult to figure out what size was the community. So you're down to all sorts of um, uh, variables in an equation. Um, how many people could whatever food was available in the Boyne Valley support, for instance, is a question. But even that's a variable because they had introduced farming. So what was the scale of the farming? How many fields or paddocks of grain were they growing? How many cattle did they keep? You know, Um, and down to then, because we know they fetched stone from Clara Head and we're pretty sure they brought some of the stones from uh, Dundalk Bay. And it is speculated that the quartz at Newgrange came either from the Wicklow Mountains or from Rockabill Island. Now, Rockabill isn't too far away, but it's still, you know, maybe 20 miles. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a river and sea journey. Um, Wicklow, that's an 80 kilometre journey. You have to get the stones down to a boat, first of all, and then you get, a, get got to get the boat up the coast. So it's very difficult to estimate the size of the community that was involved. And there's an emphasis recently in the archaeological research on a regional community and a regional effort. So you're not talking about 100 or 200 people based in the in the bend of the Boyne. You may be talking about a lot more people, you know, who were involved in the Leinster country. nearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah basically. And then in, in that scenario, a community could have built it in a shorter time scale. What we do know is that uh, there's evidence at Newgrange where the cairn material, so the water roll stones, which is what makes up most of the cairn, they're brought. And then there's a period of inactivity. And then you can see a layer of growth where basically while they weren't building, there was a bit of oh, grass reclaimed. and all that. Yeah. Right. And then more stones. So there's there's a few layers where the, the work had stopped. The other thing is that the archaeologists tell us, and it makes sense, that the mounds were built uh, at quiet times in the arc in the agricultural calendar. So there's times of the year when you're busy, you're harvesting, etc., etc. Um, I would not presume our Neolithic ancestors had to be involved in calving and looking after the young cattle. You know, um, now nowadays most cattle herds are either calving in the spring or in the autumn. Or indoors and, whenever yeah, you well, want, basically. Yeah, exactly. These days. Um, and, of course, some farmers have mixed herds, spring and autumn calving. Um, so there's going to be times in the calendar when you've got more spare time and you've got surplus food because you've had your harvest, etc., etc. And so the, the supposition is that the, there was a lot of building activity when the agriculture was quiet. Um, but how long is a piece of string in terms of how many people were involved and how long it took? It's there's no it hasn't been quantified, uh, and I think there's a very good reason for that, because we we only have very limited material evidence, and and as I said, probably the single most important factor is that we don't know uh, where the community lived. Yeah, on, on that on where they lived, my and again, I don't even know where I'm getting this, but my understanding of kind of ancient Ireland was that it was pretty much forest from coast to coast, with the exception of maybe Connemara, where it was too rocky. So presumably early settlers here came up our estuaries and, you know, felled enough trees to obviously light fires and build huts or houses or whatever they were living in and cleared a certain amount of land to to farm. Yeah. 
So does that line up with what yep. you, you would have thought? Yeah, that's it? fairly accurate. Apparently, now, if you take the uh, the uh, experts at their word, um, obviously, in the immediate aftermath of the Ice Age, there wasn't much in the way of forest forestry. But apparently, in the Mesolithic, around the time the first people arrived, um, Ireland was very heavily forested. I've seen it suggested that a squirrel um, could make its way from Malinhead in the north to... Um, Mizzenhead, which I think is the most southerly point of yeah, Ireland, yeah. without ever its feet ever touching the ground. Right. I don't know whether that's true or not. Well, that I, that's a very impressive me. statistic, you know. <laughs> if it's true. It's the sort of thing you could, if you if you had a few drinks and you're at a party, you could impress your mates with, you know. Oh, come here, wait till I tell you, you know, because they think, you know, Anthony the the geek, you know, the studies Stone Age stuff when everyone else is watching uh, Game of Thrones or whatever, you know. <laughs> Um, there what are there are some very you? impressive statistics and numbers that you can throw out at people. That's one of them. You're very right, by the way, about the de deforesting. Um, like in order for the monuments to have been built, there has to be deforesting. And curiously, there's two references in mythology in the Dinchanicus. There's two references to the clearing of trees. Uh, Slanya, who from whom Slain gets its name, King Slanya, he was a fur bullock king, according to the myths. He's supposed to be buried up on Slain. Um, uh, by him, the wood of brew, the brew was cleared. Something along those lines. It's in one of my books. Um, and the other one is to do with the plain of Brega, which is uh, a sort of, I was going to say ancient. It's not that ancient. Brega would have been very important, especially in, in Norman times. Manouth would have been the capital of uh, the Norman kingdom of Brega. But it would cover sort of a lot of what is Meath today. Yeah. And uh, there's a reference there about a guy... Uh, felling trees I think it's Brogon son of Brega is it can't remember exactly that's in my new book Mythical Ireland um, so there's two references in myth to guys apparently having forests cleared for the construction of monuments but it's not the thing about mythology it's not just stuff that our ancestors just made up they're stories that explain their history it was a way of I suppose, communicating the past to future generations. Is, or or yeah. was it? Well, mythology, I think, has many functions. And that's maybe one of them, that some of the myths contain aspects of uh, major events that might have happened and so, sort of maybe climatological disasters and that sort of stuff around the world. Um, there are creation myths, of course, which every culture has creation myths, origin myths about where we all came from. Of course, yeah. And there are many similarities there, which is fascinating. Um, yeah, myth has many functions to insti to um I, I think to there's an allegorical side to mythology. It's like it's like life training in a way, you know. It's like mythology is full of lessons and yeah, how, how to act. Yeah, and then metaphors, you know. Um so a great deal of work has been done by the likes of um well I think it all started probably with C G Young. Uh, who was a, a famous psychotherapist, a Swiss um, a psychologist. Who, Carl Jung. Yeah, 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 same guy, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of devotees to his work. I, I'm one of them. I, I find his work fascinating, although he's very heavy uh, academically and uh, you need a dictionary to read any of his books. Any of his books that are translated, um, the 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 words and the terminology, you actually need a dictionary. He's very heavy going in that respect. So then you have the likes of Joseph Campbell, who was very much a Jungian, um, uh, what you would call a protege or a, a student. 
And Campbell, I think, successfully translates the concepts and the language of Jung into easy to understand yeah. layman's terms. And so Campbell will tell you a lot of, a, a lot of myths is down to some very, very basic principles of life, like the hero's journey, which is what we're all on in life, is, you know, finding your path in life and finding your true self. And that a lot of myths are allegories and metaphors for that journey, you know, which I th- which I think is fascinating. There's a lot of cosmology in in mythology, and I'm I'm not just talking about astronomy and the stars. Cosmology, as in you know, the idea of the cosmos as being uh, everything is one and one is everything, you know, like the smallest atom is part of the cosmos, you know, yes. and of course the atom is apparently indestructible. So long after you and I are deceased physically, are 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 this ver- the billions of small particles that make us up will survive which yeah. I think is fascinating you know is it Carl, Sa- is it Carl Sagan I'm quoting here uh, I, I'm always butchering quotes and misquoting people but I think it was so Sagan. I except He's for when I write them in my books and I have to get them right yeah. was it was it Carl Sagan that said that uh, we are stardust yes yeah, yeah. I love that quote. yeah yeah He's, he that. was fabulous I love his book Cosmos yes which is, which is wonderful and very well uh, Sagan was like Campbell to me Sagan was a guy who could translate the complicated language of cosmology and astronomy into uh, everyday language for the ordinary human being who wanted to know a little bit more but well, what the hell are you talking about you know and he made it fascinating you know it's, it's, it's really fascinating I think Campbell did the same thing with mythology now we're getting into heavy ground well not heavy ground but you're kind of getting away a little bit from the archaeological sphere and and maybe that's where you lose the archaeologists. They hear guys like me talking about this stuff and they think, well, what the hell relevance does that have to my field of research? And what they don't realise is that um, mythology can offer very keen insights into ancient cultures. It's just you have to let go of your preconceptions about mythology. You know, we cannot for definite say a particular myth. A lot of the myths are described as medieval because written down in medieval times. But of course, they predate medieval because they were passed down Pardon me. They're passed down by word of mouth. The oral tradition, which is very powerful in Ireland, as it was in other parts of the world. Um, so how does a myth... Um, can I give you an example of that? How how do we know a myth might be prehistoric? So at Newgrange, before the excavations. So I'll, just for your, the sake of your viewers who mightn't be familiar with the story of Newgrange. Newgrange was excavated for, at first in the 1960s. I mean, properly excavated. There were small little bits of excavation done before that. But significant work that was done at Newgrange to investigate it and to repair and restore it and to make it safe were carried out by Professor Michael O'Kelly starting in 1962 and running on until probably the early 1980s, um, certainly into the 70s. Um, So before O'Kelly touched Newgrange, the result of... 4,000 years of subsidence for 5,000 years of subsidence had, had meant that you know the passage stones had leaned in and the roofing stones had sunk because of the huge weight of material yeah. on the cairn it's all stone so about a quarter of a million tons of stone sitting on that cairn weighing down on it um, at some stage not too long after it was built within 500 years they reckon the cairn material slipped out over the curbstones and covered all the curbstones. So you, you no longer had this delineating ring of giant curbstones around it and also buried the entrance. And the archaeologists say it was buried for 4,000 years. Before O'Kelly's excavations began in 1962, 
there were people in the Boyne Valley who were able to tell him the sun shines in there one at a particular time of the year and it lights up a tri-spiral in the chamber. They were able to tell him that there was Newgrange was once covered in white quartz. Um, All kind of later proven, say, after it was dug it, out. Exactly. And um, stuff about the gods and this, that and the other. But yes, all stuff that was borne out by the by the uh, the repair and reconstruction and excavations. So one of the things that O'Kelly did that was very important was he restored what we call the roof box, the roof box, which was this aperture, this opening above the doorway. And that was the one that allowed the sun in, that, that shines into the central chamber. So before O'Kelly's restoration, you couldn't see the sun shining into the chamber at Newgrange. That hadn't been witnessed for about 4,000 years. Yeah. And yet the locals were saying, well, this is what happens, you know. But that's the beauty of having a local man to to talk to. I that's mean, th- the this, idea. What was Kelly's name, sorry? Michael O'Kelly. O'Kelly, Well, sorry. he was attached to University College Cork. Um, so I suppose in some regards, he probably would have been considered a bit of an outsider. But he, he was, You know he, the way it works. Everything's very parochial in Ireland, or absolutely. at least it used to be, you know. But at least he had the foresight to speak to the local people. Again, yeah. You could you could easily see how he wouldn't have entertained what they had to say or not spoken to yeah, them in the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he 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 carried out probably what what was the most important act in bringing us Newgrange today as it once was. And there was no evidence of white quartz at Newgrange before it was excavated. Why? Because the quartz was originally on the front of the monument and around the the the, the, the side, sort of. O'Kelly says as a vertical, an almost vertical wall, like a facade. Say. Yeah. And when the current collapse happened, whenever that happened, uh, early Bronze Age maybe, that was the first thing to give way, and that that was the first that that was the that that was buried under all the current slips. So that's right at the bottom, yeah, of everything. So when you come to Newgrange before the excavations, you see a grass covered uh, hill, uh, essentially hill hillock with trees growing out of it, cattle grazing on it, and even though there were stones exposed and. So when when Charles Campbell um, acquired uh, the area, the land in the area in 1699 after the Battle of the Boyne, he was a Protestant uh, settler. He 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 ordered his servants to get stone from Newgrange to build his farmhouse and his buildings. And um, very shortly after, they started robbing stone from Newgrange. It was just a stroke of luck, actually. They started to take stone exactly where the entrance was. So shortly after they started this this job for Campbell, they discovered the entrance to Newgrange. And that was when the first of the antiquarians came, Edward Lloyd, who came along and said, hang on a second, lads, there's something very important going on here. And was the first to describe and draw the interior of Newgrange, probably... Um, but Campbell's labourers were probably the first humans to see the inside of that monument, certainly for centuries, if not for several millennia. Yeah. And yet, here you had the locals saying, you know, it was once covered in white quartz. Right. Now, there's a chapter in my new book um, that I dr- would maybe draw, at this point, draw your listeners' attention to, which is about this, um, you know, this pre-excavation folklore. The chapter is called The Archaeologist Who Unwisely Dismissed Newgrange folklore and this is um, an archaeologist who basically poo-pooed the whole thing um, I'll, I'll read it to you Do, it's, yeah, it's, it's, actually, it's a very interesting quote a coloured calendar current in Ireland in, 16, in 1960 had it in it a good photograph of the decorated stone at the entrance to Newgrange 
This was accompanied by an account which needs quoting almost in toto as an example of the jumble of nonsense and wishful thinking indulged in by those who prefer the pleasures of the irrational and the joys of unreason to the hard thinking that archaeology demands. The entrance in the east was originally triangular, says this description, but is now changed for easy entrance. Formerly it was necessary to crawl in and progress was retarded by interference, stones compelling the neophyte to stoop and stumble. The rays of the rising sun at certain times of the year penetrate the opening and rest on a remarkable triple spiral carving in the central chamber. Like the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, the Newgrange Temple was originally covered with a layer of white quartz and was a brilliant object of light for a considerable distance. Nudda, the first king of Tuatadanan in Ireland, and his master magician are said to have officiated here in the very, very old days. And so, of course, the uh, the archaeologist poo-poos the whole thing, says all nonsense. And then O'Kelly goes and excavates it and finds out that actually some of it's not not only true, but it's it's quite remarkable. Yes, the sun shines in there and it doesn't shine directly onto the triple spiral, but its light does light it up. And then the other thing, which I think is very significant, is, well, what what do you know? At the bottom of this cairn slip material, there's, there's a layer of white quartz, which couldn't yeah. have been seen before that. But if you believe the archaeologists, on the one hand, they're telling you uh, this collapse happened 4,000 years ago. And on the other hand, they're saying, well, poo-poo the folklore, sure, it's a lot of nonsense. Yeah, yeah. But, but the folklore says this white quartz there and the archaeology proves it. <laughs> it yeah, but it's, it's quite extraordinary really. It is, no, it, it is. It's, it's, it's fascinating and I think that's the problem with, with academia generally. Like, you know, in, in secondary school you learn a bit about everything then in, in, you know, you go off to college and you learn a bit more about everything in a bit more detail and yes, then it just, yeah, yeah. it gets narrower you get tunnel narrower. vision, don't you? You do yeah, and, yeah. and that's great because sometimes you need a guy to, you need a guy to go to, to carbon 14 date this mm-hmm. thing or, yeah, yeah. or whatever the hell it is and that's fantastic but that's why I said kind of at the outset of this, do we need a... A mixology of mm. of all these different things. A holistic discipline, one that takes an awful lot of other disciplines into account. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I, I think we're entering into a golden age of of what you might call um, kind of c- citizen citizen scientists or some something like that. Like you're a bit of a citizen scientist to a degree. Yeah, well, I hope so. Uh, I hope we're not retarding, which seems to be all happening. What's happening in certain parts of the world where there's a movement against expert knowledge, you know? Yeah, I think so, yeah. And and the conspiracy brigade who want to believe that the earth is flat and that the monuments were built by aliens. Yeah, what do you, you think know? all that is? That, is that it's a pushback or, or, or what is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, is that a pushback against so, elitism? Yeah, I think... I think... Um, it's probably a refusal of certain people to... In the young, <laughs> there's that young again, Carl Jung. Yeah, in no, the, young, I'm a big in the fan. Jungian outlook, it's probably a refusal of certain individuals to to basically confront themselves and what's in them and their own shadow. And uh, the pushback in a lot of cases is against their own deficiencies, rather than you know, it's a form of jealousy. I think in a way, um, anti-intellectualism. You know, yeah, people who want to believe that airplane pilots are spraying us with chemicals, yeah, and who say that the Earth is flat, and who vehemently, vehemently def- defend that position, 
And when you tell them, but sure, there's millions of pictures of the Earth from space. Oh, yeah, well, they're all faked by NASA to, to, to go along with this conspiracy. And the moon landings were faked and blah, blah, blah. Uh, actually, the only conspiracy that I really believe is that there was more than one person involved in killing JFK. Yeah, uh, because the evidence actually points towards it. Yeah, and sure, all you have to do is look at the footage in the immediate aftermath as to where all the pe- all the people in Dealey Plaza ran to. They ran to the grassy knoll because that's where they heard the shots coming from. Yeah, well, and I, I think the the worst thing about conspiracy theorists generally is that they they take attention away from the real conspiracies because people do conspire, and there are conspiracies that really need our attention and our knowledge they get lumped into, you know, the moon landings were fake and the earth is flat and, and all the rest of it. So it kind of draws your attention away from genuine conspiracies. What's sad about the whole situation is that the likes of, say, for instance, on TV, you have the likes of people who are popularising science and, and that, you know, science-based uh, research. So you have the likes of, I'll just throw out a couple of examples. So Carl Sagan that we spoke about yeah. was fabulous for that. Um, uh, David Attenborough has been a fantastic uh, proponent of um, the Earth's natural and uh, natural world and, and the ecosystems that support it. Um, Brian Cox, yeah, you know, and before him, Patrick Moore in Absolutely, my day, yeah, who was, yeah. It was it was one of the, you know the, star, the sky at night, was yeah, that uh, such a, yeah, such an old fashioned sort of geeky gentleman, but monocle uh, and all, oh, like. loved him, loved him. He was my idol, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you look up into the sky at night, you'll see a very bright star in the south. That is serious, you know. Yeah, I just yeah. loved him. I mean, he was old-fashioned and, you know, like the English gentleman and all that. But he was he was a gentleman. In fact, any, uh, I, now I never communicated with him, which I regret. But any of my friends who did got letters back from him. Typed. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, personal. Like, he, he spent a lot of time communicating with people, you know. But anyway, my point was, despite the presence of all these people um, extolling, you know, science and proper research you have these brigades of people for whom all of their research is done on online on websites that support their view and who won't uh who don't have the maturity or you know the intelligence i think in some cases to accept that there might be an alternative viewpoint to theirs and there's a lot of sort of ram it down your throat sort of stuff going on online it's very disheartening actually because for all the advances we've made, there's a significant proportion of these people. That's the thing, I think. You know, there's a significant portion of people, um, probably not so many in Ireland, but I think sadly growing all the time, who, you know, don't want to get into reasonable debate about things and who are not interested in the facts and will say anything to support their own uh, viewpoints, you know. And I do think it's dangerous. Um, the problem is that, you know, like when you're dealing with people who who allege all sorts of sort of major conspiracies involving hundreds of thousands of people, which, for instance, the moon landings. Or 9-11 is the other classic example, you know, I suppose, yeah. Well, well, how do you deal with that? You know, how do you how do you rationalize with these people? The answer is you don't rationalize with them, you know. What needs to happen? I don't know, but I think that's part of the effect of not having uh, a mythically rooted community and culture so just to expand on that just in case your listeners are going what the hell is he talking about <laughs> what I mean is that it's not you don't have to go too far back in Irish history so let's just take Ireland as an example 
a couple of generations ago, people were still telling stories. Communities were, broadly speaking, close-knit. People look after each other. Um, and that stems, I think, from ancient times, where communities were small, where everybody had to look after everybody else. You know, there were the usual priests or holy men and women and shamans looking after the community. And one of the ways that the community was nourished was through its myths. So myths provides a very, very important grounding function. And one of the things, as I said earlier, is that myth is a psychological thing. It's a psychological tool, as it were, whereby you're taught the lessons in life through the allegory of myth and the mythical symbol and the mythical vision. Um, I believe uh, and I agree wholeheartedly with those who would say that in Western culture, we've lost our myths and we've lost our mythical voice. I think that's part of the reason that we have this um, dichotomy, this huge variance between the learned people whose knowledge should be sacred and then the unlearned who insist that they're entitled to their own voice and their own opinion, etc., etc. The problem is that um, associated with that, there's a move towards nativism and um, xenophobia. Yeah, tribalism, nationalism, yeah. all the rest of it. So I've had to be very careful myself with that because I realised that certainly in some of my earlier work, if you read it, you might get the feeling that I was quite patriotic. Um, you might, you know, yes, I believe there's something unique about Irish culture, of course. Yes, I love Ireland. Yes, I want to preserve that. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, I, you know, you have to kind of live for the times that you're in. Of course, yeah. Um, the point is that, well, one of the points is that that, the fact that society and culture has changed, and technology has improved, and the way we live our lives has improved, does not mean that mythology should suddenly be irrelevant and defunct. And I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody out there, but I think that, Part of the difficulty for Ireland right now, and I can only speak for Ireland, is that we uh, are, are so we've given up on our spiritual life because yeah. we tie it in with organised religion. Yes, which is one of the fundamental problems. Yes, absolutely. Of the modern world is that people have heaved against religion. They've moved against it. They've rebelled against it for very good reason, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, along with the scandals, the fact that the mythical image of the church, the, the images that that religion provides us with, uh, have lost their relevance. The way I would phrase that is, um, and this might be a bit harsh or unforgiving, but I see organised religions as having bastardised uh, our mythological stories. Are, are innately human stories that, like you said it earlier on yourself, that you know, continents separated by oceans have the same, or relatively speaking, the same mythologies. We were all thinking the same things. We were, we all had the same hero myths, the same flood myths, the same kind of virgin mothers and um, and such. And the fact that we all came up with these kind of independently, to me at least, shows their the innate trueness of them if that makes sense mm -hmm. and I think yeah. that organised religions all of them have played their part in, in destroying them to a certain degree in keeping it theirs was the right one and other yeah. people's one was the wrong one 
uh, and I would have been a strident atheist all my life and would still be a, de- a devout atheist. But over the last number of years, I've gotten very much into the, I suppose, the, the beginnings of the stories, the essence of the stories. And I think they're massively, I think they're critical to uh, a functioning society. I think that's a, a Jungian approach, if I'm mm-hmm. not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, actually, probably more so Joseph Campbell. Um, yeah, I think Jung... I think Jung's sort of pioneering work was the fact that he realised that what he was saying and writing was going to appear to be mystical. Yes. And he was speaking to a scientific and academic community. Yes. And they were going to say, this guy thinks he's a priest, you know. (laughs) And he knew that. And so one of the things that he did was he looked into world mythology, mythologies, um, to find the facts to match his intuition, which I think was something that he said himself. I need to find the facts to to prove my intuitions, you know. So he, he was a guy that followed hunches, but but definitely needed to find the evidence. Um, and he found in mythologies, those common streams that you speak of, these things that in far-flung disparate nations, you find the same images coming up in mythology and the same storylines. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Of course... Uh, the likes of, uh, there's a guy called Witzel who has produced a huge tome on world mythology that I've read quite a bit of and it's very interesting, maintains that that was a migratory pattern that you can trace the myths around the world as the migrations occurred. Whereas Jung said, no, that they stemmed from this thing that he called the collective unconscious. Yes. And I think in essence what that is, is it's, it's you know he uses the word psychic and people's psychic lives quite a lot which makes him sound mystical but i think it's the idea that these are things that um go right down into the the depths of us as humans these images that spring up from each of us which appear to be individual but in fact are collective you know and i think uh, in terms of the 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 world myths um uh you you have this sort of modern movement away from mythology and to get back to the reason we we, we went down this avenue was to do it religion I think part of the reason that religion has become unpopular in certain cultures because remember there's still a lot of religious people in the world and devout quite devout and uh, we shouldn't take that away from them we shouldn't denigrate them for it although at the same time a great part of what went wrong with the church is because the church became a political body. Oh, absolutely, yeah, of course. So the church became such a huge movement. So say, for instance, the Catholic Church, which is the faith I was raised in. And by the way, I would definitely describe myself as agnostic. Right. And the very best description of that is that I don't have enough evidence to prove that a God exists and an afterlife, but I certainly don't have enough evidence to disprove it. Of course. So I kind of sit on the fence and I it's, hedge it's my the bets. Re, it's the reasonable man's answer to I a think, degree, is it? I think it is, yeah. And I think in some ways, atheism in Ireland has become a hard response, like a hard Brexit, you know? <laughs> a, hard, a hard chexit, if you call it an exit from the church, you know? A hard chexit, <laughs> where people have said paedo- priests were paedophiles and they abused children, therefore all religion is bad and I don't believe in God anymore. And I think... That is uh, a very, very serious overreaction to, and I'm not saying that's necessarily the case in your own situation, or I don't want to generalise. I just think it has been a hard exit, as it were, from 
spirituality, which is different to the church. And one of the big problems with the the demythologization mm, how do I say that word? Demythologization <laughs> of society. I just invented a word. <laughs> I must <laughs> contact the Oxford Dictionary when this is finished. Um, one of the problems is that religion insists that the metaphor is not a metaphor. Yes, it's literal. It's literal. And and the central uh, uh, warrior, as it were, spiritual warrior, the central icon of our faith was Jesus. Yes. And how did Jesus talk to his friends? In bloody parables. Yeah. Symbol, symbolic language. In other words, I'm going to tell you a parable, and that parable is designed to help you sort of lead a good life kind of thing, to provide you with an example. Did the story that he gives in the parable actually happen? No, it didn't. He's just given it as an example. So what does the church do? Everything that the Bible says is literal. And so they tried to force on us the idea that the earth was only 6,000 years old and there was a guy called Adam and there was a woman called Eve who was magically created from Adam's rib. Yeah, the world in you six know? days, he rested on the seventh and all that jazz, yeah. So if we kind of fast forward or move across to the Irish mythical sphere, do I believe that the myths are stories of real happenings? I think they are in some cases. Yes. But you have to look upon the myths. Well, each one has to be treated differently, of course, um, because each one is different. But, you know, some of the myths are allegorical, um, some of them are cosmological, um, some of them are spiritual, um, some of them are downright meaningless. You know, some of them are probably just stories that are made up for entertainment. But you can't fit all of them into any one box. And you certainly can't say that myth is recorded history. End of story. And that has been one of the major problems with organised religion is here is the metaphor and the myth that we've given you. This is our mythology because that's what ultimately you have to be careful. I don't want to offend anybody. But to me, the mythology is the, the, the Bible is largely mythology. But to some people, it's um, it's so sacrosanct that it's to them it's 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 to describe it as mythology is a form of uh, heresy. You yeah, know, yeah, it's, it's a denigration of their beliefs and it's yeah. a belittling of their ideals and, and all the rest of it. And look, I'm not here to offend anybody else either. No, you know. But what's the halfway house if there is one? You know, because on the one hand, you had a very devout Catholic population here for a long time, and look, let's call a spade a spade. Some of that was undoubtedly tied up with the political situation. Yes, of course. You know? Um, and, of course, the Catholics and the Church were persecuted in Ireland. So, you know, um, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of thing, yeah. you know? And so, yeah, you, you only have to look at the churches in Drogheda that were built in the 1880s, like St. Peter's Church in Drogheda. And you stand beneath it and you look up and you go, wow, this was built before the mechanical digger and before health and safety and before all of the modern <laughs> Hard techniques and, the, the rest of it, yeah. and look at those stones and the way they're all cut and look how the whole thing is formed it's fabulous you know so I think um, religious zeal is very important but um, religious zeal don't forget also drives nations to insanity so people are going to say Anthony you're contradicting yourself because earlier on you said that um, part of the difficulty that Ireland is in is we've lost our mythology. Yeah, but I want to make sure that people understand the difference between religion and spirituality. So religion is very much uh, an institution 
made up largely of men telling you this is what you should think and this is how you should behave in order to attain some sort of existence in the afterlife. Or else. Or else, which there, there's a threat there, isn't there? Of the, course, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the blazing fires and all the rest. Yeah. Um, spirituality is very much the Campbell-esque idea, um, Joseph Campbell, where Campbell said, you know, too many people, when they, they reach the edge of a forest, they see a pathway through the forest and they want to follow the pathway. Because it's instinctive and it's natural. You just want to go. If you're going to go through the forest, you might as well walk on the path yeah, the that's there. Of least re- resistance. So. Yeah. And he says, that's the very worst thing you can do with your life. You need to beat your own path through life. Because if you're following someone else's path, then that's not your path. And to me, that sums up the idea of a spiritual life. A spiritual life doesn't mean that you have to chant mantras and dress up as a druid or whatever it is that makes makes you tick or tickles your fancy in terms of your own religious and spiritual practices. The difference is that in a spiritual life, you actually become an individual, which feeds back a little bit into the Jungian idea of individuation, which is not what people think it is. It's not necessarily that you become a holy person or that you become an ascetic and a hermit and detach yourself from your community or that you become some sort of a, like, you know, the theologians, the the hierarchy in the Catholic Church, for instance, who are able to back up everything they say because it's all written down in, in, in books and in the Bible and this, that and the other. So they're very academic mm. and they're able to back up their arguments with, with fancy words and fancy quotations. I'm talking about somebody who just doesn't want to go with the flow, but at the same time doesn't just adopt a position out of opposition. A position of opposition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, a, a supposition, an opposition. Let's think of as, as many ishin words as we can. Uh, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. No, the point being that um, I, in my own spiritual life, uh, I had a wake-up call which came with nine eleven, Okay. And that challenged my faith. Initially, uh, drew me in desperation to try and cling on to whatever little faith I had and to try and make that come true for me and to give me some nourishment through times of crisis. Uh, so I would have suffered from depression and quite a bit of anxiety. Um, but I found it didn't give me any nourishment whatsoever. I, your, sorry, your faith. Yeah. Okay. I, I, so I, you. So and sorry, I don't mean to ask you a, a, a too personal question, but you were religious, say, or not massively so, to be honest. Okay, but no. you, you you believe? Did you go to mass, say, or like did you believe? Not in, when I became an adult, really, I stopped going to mass. Right. I just at that time, kind of said, "Well, this is the only thing I kind of have grown up with, so I need it to help me." Yes. But I felt like, and I described this to friends and relatives. Um, in the intervening period, I felt like I was entering a cave and shouting for help. And at all I was hearing back was the echo of my own voice. Right. I got nothing from it. Yeah. Nothing. No nourishment whatsoever. And around that time was when I was really starting to read about Irish mythology. So this whole journey has been fascinating for me because it's been a personal uh, spiritual voyage for me. Uh, which... I don't think you ever reach the end of your spiritual growth, by the way. Yeah, you, I mean, you may, to agree. Maybe there are certain holy men and women in the world who do. 
attain a, a, a nirvana as it were a, a point of apex in their spiritual life where they feel that they're so close to God or whatever it is divine life that they can't ascend any further and then they die fair enough but uh, I don't think you'll ever sort of as a human I don't think your spiritual growth ever ends but what does that mean to your ordinary guy on the street who's listening and saying what is he talking about I'm talking about the matrix red pill blue pill I'm talking about getting out of the system the system now this sounds like a conspiracy theorist <laughs> going back to earlier <laughs> on about chemtrails I'm not talking about a conspiracy I'm just talking about finding your own path through the forest you know uh, uh, what is it what are the things as a human being that make you feel fully alive in my case there's many things I mean photography and writing and being out at the sacred sites and the monuments being out in the landscape um playing music all that sort of stuff you know the things that i do for enjoyment yeah um and how does that how does that enter a spiritual realm but the most spiritual experiences are sometimes very profound but sometimes they're very banal you know they're always personal though personal exactly because like one man's damascene conversion is another man's road to hell you know yeah it's like um what was my conversion? Well, my conversion was a sort of a deconversion, actually. And this is something I do dip into in my new book, Mythical Ireland. You know, there's a personal aspect to it. I kind of lay bare my soul a little bit uh, in an effort to just expel this stuff from me, you know, get it off your chest sort of stuff, you know. Yeah. Like when you've been... In the traditional cultures of the world, in the likes of Africa and in other places, probably in Ireland too, you always have a shaman. And a shaman, according to Campbell, is not necessarily somebody who just has become a sort of a holy man or a holy person out of right or birthright or, you know, out of some particular distinction because he has a particular aptitude for learning. A shaman, in many cases, is a guy. Now, look, I'm talking... I have to be honest. There's um you know, there's 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 definitely a, a sort of a male bias, isn't there? You know, we think when we think of shaman, we think of men, don't we? Oh, of course, absolutely. You yeah. know, well, men... we have we have to acknowledge the possibility that in prehistoric culture, uh, women had um, a significant sort of spiritual role and, and the other thing is but if you read the mythology in Ireland there are very important male deities and they're very important female deities so there's a pantheon it's not monotheistic which is another problem by the way with religion um, but if you go back uh, if you go back to let's go back to Campbell and the shaman the shaman according to Campbell is somebody who's had a significant breakdown a significant cracking up, as he calls it, where they've lost their mind, where they've reached a spiritual crossroads, where they've had a crisis that's shaken them to their core as a human, and where they've basically gone off into the wilderness, or gone up to the top of the mountain, become an ascetic, and removed themselves from their community, which is an important aspect of it. And, you know, um, encountered themselves and their own darkness in the forest. And looking into the mirror and, you know, the, the, the water is a very, very significant dream symbol in the Jungian um, uh, works. Water is a very significant symbol for the unconscious. 
And why is that? Because water acts like a mirror and the mirror faithfully reflects back what looks at it, as it were. And the problem is, in modern societies, a lot of people are uh, purely driven by ego and don't realise that this is um, a mask that they wear and is only one aspect of who they are. And it's a sort of an almost practised, rehearsed, forced personality. Their persona. Their persona. Um, So the shaman is the one who goes off and takes off the mask and confronts his own darkness in the wilderness. And sometimes that can take a long time. But the key thing is that the shaman comes back to the community restored and strengthened by his or her experience. Yes. And is then in a position to help heal members of the community because they've been through this terrifically difficult journey, this dark night of the soul. Now, I'm not saying I'm a shaman, so don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be egotistical about it. All I'm saying is that I had my own long night of the soul and my own journey into the wilderness. Um, And I think that now, 20 years, well, it's not 20 years, it's 17 years anyway. Now, I'm a much, much stronger person spiritually for it than I was at the beginning. Because see, at the beginning, I only had what I'd been told. Yes, you hadn't discovered anything yourself. And when through a journey of self-experience uh, and your own experiences in life te- can teach you some hard lessons that's what life is and that's what I believe a lot of the myths are about there are metaphors for these hard lessons that you encounter in life but at least even if you're only mythically aware of them you're not getting a literal lesson in how to prepare yourself at least you're prepared somewhat for what's to come because life ain't easy you know isn't it the only guarantee is suffering say Death and taxes, some people say, yeah. <laughs> Suffering, yeah. I suppose it depends on your outlook, too. I mean, I, I I, used to be a very pessimistic person, and I think I'm a lot more optimistic now. That doesn't mean I don't worry about the future of the planet, which I think could end in chaos at any moment, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. You know, let's, let's call a spade a spade. With all the shenanigans that are going on in the world at the moment, all it takes is one lunatic to press a button. And, yeah, well, it's, and it's been, game over for that, all of us. That's been the same way since the Cold War, really. Yeah. Like, because one major event today in terms of an attack or a war uh, could spiral, um, could affect. I mean, we have a global economy now. So, you know, uh, so, something major happening in one part of the world could affect everybody. Yeah, um, but the, was it, where the fuck was it? Was it Hawaii? Had the the scare? They sent out a... Oh, Yeah. Missile incoming. This is not a drill. Yeah, I know. I mean, what, what would you be doing? You know, Jesus Christ! How like. many people spent their life's savings in those few moments? You know, <laughs> yeah. And who told you know who they loved them and whatever know, else? Yeah, like, yeah. do you know that kind know. of way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, that was a mistake. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. The other thing too is that um, modern society is very ill prepared to deal with debt. And dying. Oh, very much so. Jesus. And growing old. Yes, absolutely. And you only have to look at the appalling way we treat our elderly in Ireland. Yes. No, look, I'm not here to be negative. No, no, I'm no, actually no. a very. I did say there, I'm a very positive person. So, I, I don't like to generalise, but in some cases, we treat our elderly very appallingly, and we're very ill prepared for for death. There's a very interesting new book brought out last year called My Father's Wake by a man called Kevin Toulis. Very interesting read. And in it, he supposes that, and I think he's right, that the Irish wake is the last remaining vestige of an ancient, a very ancient rite of the community that has been a very important part of human life and 
getting through through life and dealing with death since the earliest days. And the the wake being that you stay with the body. Yeah, yeah, that you have contact with the deceased. Yes. And he calls the opposite to that, the antithesis of that, is the Western death machine, which is, oh no, as soon as they die, take them away and bring them to an undertaker. And the undertaker does all the dealings, all the nasty stuff yeah. that we once did as communities. And then they're made up and presented in suits, in boxes and all the rest. And so, you know, in Britain, he says, that a lot of people, except for close family, a lot of people don't actually get to see uh, dead bodies anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas in Ireland, we definitely have a tradition of not just seeing them, but touching them and kissing them and all the rest, yeah. you know? Um, now, in the Neolithic, in uh, the time of Newgrange, it, I don't think a lot of people who are alive today could deal with the way the dead were handled in the Neolithic. Because you know, like, a lot of the burials in the passage mounds um, were very fragmented. Some of them are cremated and some non-cremated. There was so a, the remains that have survived today? Mm-hmm. Okay. They were processed. So, oh, there's a little chapter in my new book about it. Uh, <laughs> they were dismembered. Okay. Cut up. Yeah. Burnt. And then fragmented somehow further. Okay. Before all of the little bits and pieces were carried into. Like today, we go to a thing called a crematorium. And again, the curtain closes. And it's game over. On the coffin. Yeah. And that's the last we see. And then a furnace blasts the thing until there's nothing left but kind of a fine powder bits and pieces you know and you get a little porcelain yeah. urn and you bring that home and whatever else but in the Neolithic somebody had to be responsible for the processing of the body yeah now, everyone did to a degree did, I, did, I, there, do you know what I mean I think it's likely that there was a much greater involvement community involvement in it you know there would have had to have been yeah like if you look at the tradition here and, and the wake is kind of dying in fairness you know there is a huge community involvement isn't there you know um, and somebody has to wake the body through the night. Like that's going on still in Ireland, yes, I'm glad absolutely. to say. Yeah. Where, you know, people do a, a shift through the night, yeah. two hours here, it. two I've hours, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, where you're, you need to be in the press. And, like, that's unheard of in a lot of Western countries today. It's like, no, it's a, the idea of being in contact with the dead body is appalling to some people, you know. Anyway, in the Neolithic, <laughs> you know, somebody had to cut the body up into pieces and then burn it and all the rest. So... We have very, very different ways of looking at things, you know. Um, to them, I assume that would have been a very natural thing. And in fact, Marion Dowd from Sligo IT, who has done some work on um, ancient bones in Ireland. Um, so I think it was Marion Dowd. I could be mistaken now, but I think she suggested that they might even have um, worn pendants with, with a bone from their deceased relative. Okay. You know that like a relic. That's kind of like cool. The, re- actually, the religious relics, you know. like An actual part of oh. your dad, your granny yeah. or whoever yeah. whoever it was. But that idea is is disgusting to some a lot of people now. Yeah, I could the see, idea I could that see you how would that would be. Carry a bone around with you, you know. Yeah. Oh, revolting. Sacrosanct. Yeah. But, um, so we just kind of have moved on so much. I think life has become very clinical in some regards. If you look at the system, and again, this is matrix stuff, but not conspiratorial. I mean, it's just the nature of the system that we've made is such that it is a system. It's robotic in nature. 
it's like a machine. Yeah. And we have become like machines. Yeah, traffic lights. And stop, when we start. become like machines, what happens? We act we, like machines. We lose our mythical voice. Yeah. We're no longer spiritual and mythical beings. We're robots. And what happens then is that people crack up. And the system can't deal with that. The system just wants to drug people who crack up. It doesn't yeah. want to effectively deal with them. Yeah, give give it a term. He is, you know, a mental illness. Call mm. it what you will. Mm-hmm. And here's the pill for said mental illness. And then the you door. see, there's such a huge stigma around the area of men- mental illness in Ireland. Yeah, massively. Well, so that's still. because historically we haven't been able to deal with it. Because historically, if there was something wrong with you, you were punished for it. Yeah. Now that stemmed uh, undoubtedly to some extent from the religious orders. Yeah, that's our, our kind of our recent history. Mm, you know, um, but I think. It's very difficult for people to latch on to the idea that re-engaging with our mythology can somehow help them. And this is where you have to be careful. Um, Some of the people who follow Mythical Ireland are, you know, new age types and are a little bit away with the fairies in more ways than one. I don't want to denigrate anybody because everybody's different, you know. And I've encountered some really, really lovely people. But when you get talking to them, there's some very, very strange ideas, you know. So people who on, you know, looking from the outside appear to be very normal and very healthy people and very friendly and very nice people. But then you, you find out they have very peculiar views on things like they might be mad conspiracy theorists or they might think that new aliens built Newgrange. There's absolutely no evidence for that. Yeah, yeah. I have to be careful in my work not to try as much as possible to back up what I say with some sort of evidence. Uh, but undoubtedly some of what I've written might come across as being a little bit new agey. And I think there's a resistance to that in modern society. And it's the same resistance that religion has encountered. It's the same sort of resistance. People are saying, well, you know, we don't believe that Jesus died. We don't, why, why, why would God punish his son like that? How, what, like in fairness that's a good good argument yeah of course what yeah. father that you know of which of your friends would willingly sacrifice their child's life I couldn't and begin see, to imagine and, it and see them tortured yeah even though apparently it's for some greater good but these are the type of questions that I asked as an 11 year old and I got insufficient answers and just went this is bullshit and just lost and faith I think with it for want of a better term the problem is and the real problem is that Nobody stopped and said, hang on, this is just a metaphor and this is the meaning of the metaphor. Yes, it's all about sacrifice and whatever else. Mm-hmm. It was used as a, a, an image that had real vitality. In other words, you were taught that this actually happened and that if you don't believe it, well, you know, there are serious consequences. So there's always a threat. And I believe that threat-based religion is a big part of what's wrong with society now because we couldn't deal with all this threat we have enough of a threat hanging over us it's called death yeah absolutely. we're all going to die that existential angst yeah. and this is something i talk about in my, my my book newgrange pardon me newgrange monument to immortality and one of the reasons i called it that was because i believe that the neolithic people believed that life was immortal that after you left the body you still had vitality your soul went somewhere and this is evidenced by near-death experiences or at least that's if you accept the near-death experience as evidence of a crossing over 
but certainly the, a lot of people who have had positive near-death experiences it's been a very sort of life-affirming and life-changing event for them you know but you you've been taught that no this is actual history this man died so that yours and all that and all that and all that and transubstantiation you know the the turning of the the, the bread and wine and the into bread, yeah. i mean come on folks if we only just realize that it's okay to speak metaphorically and allegorically and to speak in symbols you know symbols resonate with human beings we are naturally drawn to symbolism we make symbols and patterns out of things yeah. whether or not they're it's called par- parodelia or paradolia parodelia i think it's called you know you might see a bunny rabbit in the clouds or yes. you might see something in the the bark of a tree that looks like the face of a man and then a religious guy will say it's Jesus and another guy will say it's Buddha or Hare Krishna, it is. And, yes. you know, yes. and, 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 and never the twain shall meet. Um, what about the person who just goes into the forest and says, I just want a moment of calm. I find that, so I might be describing myself here. I might be along the River Boyne somewhere. I might be in a forest. I might be on the top of a hill somewhere. I'm watching a sunset or I'm watching the water and listening to the sounds of the water. I may be watching a buzzard flying. I might be watching swans swimming along. And in those little moments of my life, I have encountered eternity where you just want to freeze that. Yeah. That moment is all eternity for you. It's like... Yeah, you've suddenly realised that you're at an apex in your life. In your spiritual life, you just feel, wow, yeah, I'm having quite a profound little moment here. I'm out in nature. I'm away from the system. I'm not on the rat run. I'm not in traffic. I'm not running to an appointment. I'm not trying to prepare a report for my boss. I'm not trying to pretend to be somebody I'm not. I'm just out here in my own skin, on my own terms, in nature. And you know what? It feels bloody good. And how about that? being a spiritual life for somebody no absolutely that, that resonates how is that not more profound than believing that a human being was sacrificed by some god two thousand years ago so that all our sins may be forgiven and all the rest and that we might attain eternal life why not you know try and encounter some sort of a spiritual existence in your own on your own terms without the, the frame the frame of the framework of a church or a body of people that says you Thou shalt and thou shalt not, which is very much the language of religion. You will and you won't. And if you don't, this is the punishment. And if you do, this is the reward. Well, feck that. How about I have my spirituality on my terms, which I think is what I've decided. But the one thing I didn't do was to consider atheism because I didn't, for me personally, it, it number one, it wasn't an intellectual response. And number two, it wasn't uh, it wasn't in tune with my own sort of instinct i couldn't declare everything spiritual to be dead because of certain happenings see humans are humans at the end of the day and you'll see all sorts of stuff about the word of god and all the rest but the word of god was written down by men yeah no absolutely so so what's the difference to the guy that says he's writing for god and the guy who's a new ager, for instance, and who's channeling information from beings from another planet and says that they've got all this advice for us and all these warnings for us. So which one should we take more seriously? Well, I would be sceptical of anybody who told me that they had any answers, never mind all the answers. Do you know, like I know I think you're, the, the little of your work that I've dipped into, because I, I consciously didn't really go deep into looking at you know, the 
reading your books and watching all the videos because I, I wanted to speak to you here from the viewpoint of somebody listening, not from the viewpoint of somebody who was already very familiar with, you say. Yeah. But um, that idea, that what you mentioned there about kind of finding peace with yourself and you could phrase it as almost being one with God, say, in that moment. I think people are people are yearning for that. There's, there's a real people are really missing that and I think there is a move away from that systemic robotic society that we live in now and the whole the whole fundamental underlying principle to, to what I'm doing here is a pushback against that what I call the domestication of our species of, of you and me and, and everybody listening we, we need it to be domesticated to a certain degree so that we can live in large scale societies we need to be civil to each other we can't it can't just be I'm bigger and stronger than you so I'm taking your land. We we had to be civilized, so a certain amount of domestication was was necessary. I think, I think we've gone we've gone too far down that road, just over over the centuries and millennia maybe, but there's certainly a pushback and there's certainly a move towards spirituality, and a move away from religion. And the the two most popular podcasts that I've had have been with the same guy Ivan McQuillan and all we talk about is spirituality and the idea of death and rebirth and finding your finding your own path through life um, Ivor's used psychedelics in a big way to, to to navigate his way through life and would be an, av- adv- ad- an advocate of experimenting with substances that alter your consciousness to get a better understanding of your of yourself and i just there's a real resurgence in in all in this in this type of conversation that we're having yeah which i suppose is healthy in itself um i think once people are willing to engage in the conversation it's always a good start i think one of the difficulties is that rampant atheism that's there is I, I think I think no, and it could be mistaken, and I, I know theologian, but um, I think it's a kind of a, a, a an overreaction to the scandals and the difficulties that people have with the church and the perceived cruelty of the of the religious bodies in various um, scandals that have happened. But what what relevance I suppose does that have to the myths of Ireland? It's probably one of the things your listeners are uh, probably reached a point in the conversation and said, well, you've said this and you've said that. And now you're saying that a spiritual experience just can be just the simplest things like standing by the side of a river or, or watching a sunset. And um, the point is that um, so long as your mythology or your belief, as it were, um, uh, doesn't insist that uh, you have supremacy over somebody else. Um, as you said, we have to kind of live with each other. Very limited resources. The population is growing. The planet is shrinking in many respects. Yeah, we're getting closer. You know, we're being forced to be closer. Yeah. Um, the point is that so long as your mythical or your religious beliefs don't encourage you to act violently against either your fellow human beings or your planet, um, I think that... Um, the poet or the musician or the artist always seems to have the language or the symbolism to communicate the angst of the society in which they're living at that moment in time. Um, I've, look, here's just one kind of spurious example. 
uh, I found that the the songs of U2 when I was growing up I don't like their later work by the way I found that they captured a certain angst and a, they captured some essence of what it was to be growing up in Ireland so the troubles were going on in the north and we had economic catastrophe in the 1980s and we lost an awful lot of our young talented people who emigrated and there were you know, we hadn't really confronted the 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 religious situation was about to burst open, it was about to become a tidal wave washing over the country, really, wasn't it? Yeah. But maybe in the eighties it hadn't just quite happened. Because it was only later that we learned about a lot of all of the scandals and that we sort of started to confront them. And that's a very painful process that's still going on. I just found that that's just an example the music of U2 seemed to capture it and then I think about stuff that I've written about um, so for instance my new book I talk about the poets by the Boyne and two in particular who are Francis Ledridge and John Boyle O'Reilly who both um, uh, were very talented poets and were very mythical characters in many regards um, you know Ledridge loved walking along the Boyne um, Boyle O'Reilly wrote about his longing to come back to the Boyne and wanted to be buried at Douth, you know. And so if you, if we think about the time frame, um, Boyle O'Reilly, uh, 19th century, and, you know, um, because of his involvement in, let's say, um, nationalistic and uh, republican activities, was sent away to Australia to hard labour. And then escaped from there and went on to America where he became a very passionate Irish-American voice, you know, and a very powerful figure in, in many respects. And then Ledwidge, who was a very, very talented poet and who uses the most extraordinary, beautiful language and who then signed up for the British Army and went and fought in the Great War and wrote about his longing to come back to the Boyne and the simple stuff which was just to walk along the Boyne at Cruban and Rossnery and all the rest. And he never got his wish. He wrote very prophetically. He wrote a poem um, called The Dead Kings. All the dead kings came to me at Rossnery where I was dreaming. Um, and uh, I have a chapter about that poem in my book because there's a mythical sort of significance to it. Um, if I could just find it here, I'll tell you very specifically. I want to read the, the last uh, couple of lines of it. Uh, page 220. Available in all good bookshops, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Use the code word off the lead for a 75% discount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd be doing well. Uh, well, retail price is twenty nine ninety nine. Um, And one said, since the poets perished and all they cherished in the way, their thoughts unsung like petal showers inflame the hours of blue and grey. And one said, a loud tramp of men we'll hear again at Rossnery. A bomb burst near me where I lay. I woke, twas day in Picardy. And what actually happened to Ledridge was a bomb burst beside him and he was blown to bits and that's how he was killed. So that poem is very prophetic in many respects. Um, and I just find that in every age there is a poet or an artist or a writer who's able to capture the essence of the struggles of that age. And it's almost always framed heroically or mythically, isn't it? You know, I mean, if you look back, if you quote, if you, you know, look at any of the great sort of artists of the last couple of centuries in Ireland, 
there's always there's there's a great sort of mythical or heroic aspect to their work. So the likes of Yeats and uh, his friend George William Russell, whose work is very mystical, extraordinary. Russell claimed to have visions of the she and the other world, the co- the many coloured land, as he called it, which he reckoned coexisted with our world. You know. Um, which in essence is the whole idea of the she as the original description of the monuments, a portal or an access point, a place where you venture between realms. To the, like a portal to the afterlife, say? Well, the afterlife or another realm of consciousness another or another spiritual or plane or whatever. what you will, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And I just find that uh, in every age, there's the artists and the musicians and the poets are the ones who are able to give voice, as it were, to the struggle that's going on. I think that we overcame um, the worst of our um, bestial nature, as it were, with the conflict, you know, the conflict in Northern Ireland, which, when I was a kid, dominating the daily headlines, atrocities, almost every day, and all of the murders and all the tortures and all the stuff that happened. And um, we now find ourselves, having moved on beyond all that and all the religious scandals, we actually now find ourselves in a very sort of place, a, a very spiritually bereft place. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. We're in a vacuum now. Yeah, big time. Yeah, big time. okay. Economically, we seem to have done well. Of course, we, we crashed the economy. And by the way, the politicians didn't do that. And neither did the lawmakers and neither did the banks. The ordinary people of Ireland are largely responsible for that. Yeah, uh, there's a very controversial. There remark. is a very controversial mark. There's and a, a four-hour podcast. Yeah, in yeah. Itself. Well, let's let, let's not open that can <laughs> we, of worms. We'll get but, you back for that one. <laughs> but you know, there has to ha- there has to have been a public to have been complicit in all this. So they were the people who were buying houses or trading up, actually, in a lot of cases, to un- totally unsustainable mortgages. How did they think they were going to g- going to last? You know, uh, all that. They were sold a dream, but again, you know, anyway, we won't. We won't. No. Not today. So apparently now we seem to be doing, but that's only a facade, of course, because a lot of people aren't doing well economically. Of course. And a lot of people are living on the, the bread line and on the line of poverty. Yep, but soup kitchens like, are on the rise. Even considering all that and outside of all that, our spiritual health as a nation, what's it like? Let's define it here for a second. Let's make that the subject of conversation. Off the top of my head, I would have said it's non-existent. Yeah. So, we're, so in essence, um, we're almost like an atheistic uh, secular culture, right? And people say, well, what's wrong with that? You know, this is modern life. And we don't believe in these, you know, men in white thrones with white beards decreeing this, that and the other against humans. I'm not talking about that kind of spiritual life. I'm talking about, you know, if you're grown into the system and you're molded to the system... Then and there was a beautiful uh, quote by Campbell about uh, Star Wars because you know Joseph Campbell was involved in Star Wars because a lot of the storylines of Star Wars are based on world myths and yes. Ca- Campbell and um, George Lucas were good friends and Campbell um, advised Lucas and there's an Irish myth in there the 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 losing of the Nuadu who was by the way mentioned I mentioned Nuda as he was mentioned in that 1960 calendar now he wasn't the one that officiated Newgrange it was Dagda and Elkmar anyway nevertheless they weren't too far off because Nuda Nuadu was one of the supreme Irish deities of the two headed Danon and in the first battle of Moitura he had his arm cut off and when the king had a blemish he couldn't rule anymore that was the law and in his absence, a king called Bress ruled, and he was partly from Orion. 
And if ever you wanted a parallel for what's going on in the United States of America right now, <laughs> and I'm not going to say, I'm not mentioning any names. I'm not, go, I'm not opening that bloody can of worms to tell you. Read the story from Irish myth called The Reign of Bress. And I will say no more. And then what happens is that Nuadu, having been deposed because he's, he's armless, yes. has a new arm fashioned by the the magician a healer, Dian Kecht, who makes him a silver arm. And my friends, if you've ever seen the scene in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker confronts Darth Vader and has his arm chopped off, at the end of that movie, you will see that he is fitted with a new silver robotic arm. And that myth is inspired by the myth of Nuadu, of the silver arm from Irish mythology. Savage. Yeah, it's mad. That is class. But uh, what was my point? My point was Star Wars. Yeah, Campbell had a lovely lovely way of speaking about Star Wars is that Darth Vader typifies uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here and I may be embellishing so yeah, this, yeah, no, go let, for let, let's say this is a Campbell Murphy quote right <laughs> <laughs> um, we in being bred into this machine that we call civilization and society we become Darth Vader we're part human part machine yeah, I like that. And the thing is, well, what are we going to be? Are we going to be human or are we going to be machine? What's the danger of being a machine? The danger of being a machine is Nazi Germany. We just we just all march towards oblivion. Deferred in, responsibility in, or diffused responsibility. You yeah. do your you do your bit. Yeah. Young Young lived and uh, uh, encountered the Nazis. In fact, he had a meeting with uh, Goebbels, wasn't it? Didn't know after that, after which he felt violently ill. By the way, he vomited just from the presence of yeah, Goebbels. just from the presence <laughs> of him. He was sickened by him. But uh, he was famously quoted. He was uh, at a conference in Germany, uh, maybe in the nineteen thirties, and um, the army was goose stepping outside. And he said, "Oh, there they all go marching towards oblivion," you know, because he could see it coming. And indeed, Jung had. Uh, terrifically disturbed visions in his dreams about Europe being covered by a sea of blood. Yeah, the deaths you know, of tens of millions of people. You know. Um, so that's the danger, I think. So what's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that is definitely not uh, thou shalt and thou shalt not because there's this guy in the sky who's going to get very mad at you if you don't. Yeah. Because that's, I think, has has been part of our problem. The answer is probably somewhere, somewhere between yes, you're right, we need to have a machine to serve our needs. But what are our needs? If our needs are purely material, then the machine will be a purely material thing. If our needs are organic, the machine will be an organic thing. If our needs are spiritual, the machine will be a spiritual thing. It needs to be like a, a chimera. Is that the word for it? A, it needs to be a, a, a sort of a mixture of things, you know? Yeah, symbiosis maybe. or Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me for not having the correct terminology to hand um, but I tell you I am one of those people who uh, regularly commutes up and down the motorways to a job in Dublin and like a lot of other people I sit sometimes in very heavy traffic not moving very far very fast and all these thousands of vehicles wondering what the hell did I do deserve this do you know yeah I've done it I've been that soldier yeah and I'm sure many of your listeners are in the same position they're, they could be listening to us right now so, on the M50 so are, they're leading the ideal life the ideal life is that uh, husband and wife say two or three kids both working 
both in professional jobs, this, that, there, blah, blah, blah. Both have a car, nice four-bed, semi-detached house, allegedly happy with their lives. Yeah. Leaving their house at 7am every morning and not getting home till half seven in the evening. Yeah, while, Exhausted. Someone, while someone else minds their kids. Yeah. You know, so um, that's the machine for me. And that is the antithesis to my spiritual life, which is the quiet moments by the boyne or up it's on the, the hill watching the sunset or... It's, you know. the antithesis, it's the antithesis to not just your spiritual life, but to a spiritual life. Like, how, how could you? How could you well, be? Well, there are some practitioners who say that you can, you can have, yeah, you can enter a state of of calm, and you can have your heaven in any place if you really want to make it. I can't say yay or nay to that. All I can say is that, in my own experience, uh, I, I I very much have to have the sacred space, as it were, which can be as simple as just being in a forest or, you know, um, being in the Boyne Valley or being at some sacred site or monument or watching the stars somewhere at night and just, you know, sim- it's it's really, really simple, you know. So, for instance, um, if you've ever seen the film Invictus, um, um, <laughs> Nelson Mandela spent what was it was it 26 years of his life the best part of 30 in a anyway, tiny yeah. cell yeah you know and Invictus summarises his defiance his his will to become a heroic epic mythical character who is unfortunately trapped in this little box out of the night that covers me dark as the pit from pole to pole I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And I just think that's so powerful. That's Mandela. That's Well, that's Invictus, which I'm not sure who the poet was. Okay. But that was one of the things that he apparently read and and spoke as a, you know, it's one of the things that kept him sane. And is there an analogy there, do you think, to modern life with all its commuting and all its bullshit yeah, to we're, the cell? we're in that box. Yeah, we're in it. Of course we are. Uh, okay, it's... It's 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 comp- comp- comparable. It's not it's not a, a physical copy, it, but in many respects, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's analogous. Eh? You're in a box, aren't you? Well, the, the way I've you been know. phrasing it is that you're on the lead, on the lead, yeah, on the lead of society. And again, getting back to the whole premise of of our conversation here and the other conversations that I've had and the ones that I'm I'm striving to have. It's all about getting people off the lead. It's getting, it's just wakening people up, I suppose, that there is an alternative to X Factor and Coronation Street and, you know, pints of Heineken at the weekend and yeah. whatever has been rammed down your throat in HD, sorry, in, in ultra HD yeah, 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 fucking yeah. 4K. And you whatever. need to have the newest TV. <laughs> and of course, the advertisements pop up to tell you that you need this TV to watch because the one that you're watching on isn't good enough. And yeah. so therefore you need to earn more money and put more by and you need to work harder and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and don't forget the pension and the life insurance and mm. all the rest of it. All very, very, very important. Yeah, of course, none of that was relevant in Stone Age society. But at the same time, look, I'm not suggesting for a second. I'm always saying to people, you, you can't, you can only live in the time that you're living in. Well, I, well, I, I love, I love this time period. I think this is the golden I, era of well, everything. I, I do think that we're very fortunate. If only we could work towards the common good all of the time, we could achieve so many brilliant, brilliant things. But we're driven to conflict so much. It's like, guys, at the end of the day. We all, as President Kennedy said, we all 
share this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures and we're all mortal. Yeah. So uh, on that basis, why the hell don't we all just have a big group hug, you know, and just agree that you're different to me and you have different opinions to me and different outlooks, but that's okay. That's all right. So long as you don't threaten to kill me or you don't, you know, physically harm me or deprive me of, for instance, my, 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 my way of life or my food or my natural resources that I need to live, then we're okay. But <laughs> for some reason, we're driven to conflict, you know? Yeah, why can't we all just get along? Like, it, it sounds it sounds a bit arty-farty and airy-fairy, but I mean, never was a truer word said, really. Like, why can't we just all get along? And it's... the. Well, there's an impediment to it, which is a sort of a, a natural human thing. But unfortunately, it's a lack of maturity on behalf of a lot of the leaders of today who are so obsessed with their own images and their own egos. They don't realise. Well, we, I think the, the idea of having a career politician, I think, is inherently wrong. So once you become a career politician, your job is to get re-elected. And that never serves the people you're supposed to be serving at all. Yeah, um, <coughs> and we could be on the verge. Let's be honest, we could be on the verge here of a very major catastrophe. How so? Politically or socially or economically or all of the above? I mean, there's the drumming up of a lot of hatred and division and xenophobia and. Blaming, looking outwards for the cause of the problems of a an individual or a society. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right there. And the most urgent work, according to Young, of our age, is the looking inwards. Yeah. And it's not being facilitated. I think people are looking for people to blame, but that comes from mm-hmm. being inherently unhappy. Which ties in with the argument, which would make another four-hour um, interview about we are responsible collectively for the collapse of the Celtic Tiger economy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, as you said yourself, so wisely, we won't go down that Actually, rabbit hole you know too what? deeply. No, uh, I don't want to become a hate figure, you know. <laughs> I'm happy enough to do my Mythical Ireland thing and for people to be inspired by it. Because, look, it inspires me. And I would like to think that what I've done will inspire people to to a better future and to a better humanity. Yeah, no, absolutely. Which is the dream. Um, and I think which is, by the way, the original purpose of myth was to to allow the initiate to be confronted with the mysteries and the <coughs> intangibles of life and to be able to deal with that and reconcile them with that. And part of that reconciliation is a reconciliation with yourself and your own base nature, your own cannibal, your own savage nature. Yeah, your shadow was, I think. Your Jung shadow, exactly as Jung puts it. And what what is that? Because that just sounds like loose terminology that I'm spouting out here and all sorts of new age wishy-washy claptrap. What I'm talking about is being able to look at your... And it's, it's in a way, it's kind of looking at your... Confessing your sins. Except for, I don't believe it's healthy for a human to look upon themselves as a sinner because first and foremost, you see the faults. Yes. I think it's more healthy for a human to first and foremost consider your your your, your strengths and your good points. 
the problem is a lot of people don't want to admit that they have any failings. They don't want to confront that at all. And there's no meaningless confrontation of it and reconciliation of it. It's a, the idea is that you 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 meet the devil and you shake hands with the devil, but you meet him on your terms. You know that you're not afraid to go to that place. So in mythology, here's a very good example. In mythology, there's a there's a, a, a the source of the Boyne River in mythology is Necton's Well, which is a male domain. Necton being the male king and his three cupbearers who are all male. No one shall approach the well except for Necton and his three cupbearers. Bowen, who is his wife, decides, I'm going to approach the well. And she walks around it three times <coughs> anti-clockwise, which is Widdershins, which is against the natural order of things. And of course, Jung would tell you that that is the movement towards the unconscious. Um, so in defying uh, the wishes of the king, what happens is the well basically bursts forth into a huge fountain and engulfs her and washes her down this channel, creating the Boyne River as it goes along. And it's washing her down and pushing her down, creating the river. And as it does, she becomes mutilated. And eventually it goes out to sea and washes her out to sea where she's drowned. So there is the essence of a myth that is very much about the confrontation of your own shadow nature. Like the symbolism, as I said very early on in the interview, uh, of the water, which represents the unconscious. And the the reflection yourself. And the idea of looking into a well, you're going to see a reflection, and that reflection is faithful. In other words, when the mask is taken off, and you realise what you are beneath that... You lose your persona. Your base nature. Yes. Like, the things that you don't want the public to know about, you know? Like, the fact that you can be a bit of a... bit of a... You know, I could use language, but you can be a bit of a prick and, you know, maybe you've said and done things to hurt people. Maybe you have certain beliefs that don't sit well with, you know, maybe, maybe somebody out there is a bit of a racist, but doesn't want to admit it. Maybe you've wanted to do things, but never did. You know, um, now that's not to say that you normalize it. It's not about normalizing what's not right in you or... Um, normalising um, behaviour towards your fellow humans that is not um, conducive to harmonious relations. It's just about acknowledging that that's there. And it's there in all of us. And the problem is that an awful lot of people just haven't... Well, look, I don't think they have the structure or... I don't think they've been given the the proper education, grounding, insight into that. And I think that's part of what a mythical and spiritual life would actually do for a person is to enable them first and foremost to have the maturity to say, well, hang on a second. Before I enter a discussion with this person in which I'm going to disagree vehemently with them and we're going to get into a row. Is there something about what I'm going to say that is actually a reflection of my own nature? And is there something that I could do with myself in terms of confronting that nature that might make me change my mind somewhat so that I'm a little bit more mature about it, perhaps, you know? You have a bit of introspection. It's a good word, isn't it? I love it, Looking inwards. Yes, Introspection. Yeah. Sincere looking inwards. Yes. Not not superficial. A sincere looking inwards. And that's part of the journey that uh, humanity needs to take urgently. Oh, absolutely. And Jung was saying that a century ago. Well, almost a century ago, yeah, he was yeah. saying that before the catastrophes of the, certainly before the Second World War um, and the senselessness of that. 
do you, you know. Do you think the world wars had to happen to a degree? Like, you know, throughout, like if, put it this way, if we were to discover, a, a, you know, another planet with life akin to our own, do you think they'll have had their world war? Do you think that it was not essential, but necessary, well, yeah. maybe? <laughs> That's part of the Drake equation, which is something that Carl Sagan wrote about in trying to figure out how many other alien civilizations there might be out there. One of the uh, variables of the Drake equation so the Drake equation is an equation designed to try and work out, you know, <coughs> what what um, uh, what percentage of the planets out there might have life on them. Yeah. And one of the variables is about whether a civilization has reached the stage of self-destruction or not, or well, whether they've or the they've ability to to, to grow up and mature and and get beyond that. Yes. And we're I think we're at that moment. Well, we've certainly we've been... never possessed the tools before to completely destroy human life, and we have those now, man-made. We, well, we have them decades. Like, I mean, when did when were they dropped on Hiroshima and mm. Nagasaki? Yeah, like, I mean, what, uh, okay, yeah, but it's what 40s. I mean is when I say we've never had that. You know, we've we've existed for as humans, we've existed for hundreds of thousands of years. Yes, and all of a sudden. <laughs> you have the ability. We have them as of this morning, say, in, you know, it, when you look at that kind of time. Yeah, and on, a 20, on a 12 hour clock, we, we got that ability about 30 seconds ago, you know, yes, or maybe yes. 10 seconds ago. Um, So it's kind of a very frightening place to be. And the reason it's a frightening place to be is because um, the next one could be the last one. Yeah, absolutely. What was it? Was it Einstein said, if the Third World War is fought with nuclear weapons, the Fourth World War will be fought with sticks and stones. Oh, I never heard that. I like that now. Because um, uh, nuclear war is the end. Would be left, it's a yeah. world-ending event, really. Yeah. Not a... I don't think not a life-ending event, but maybe a human life-ending event. Well, that's another thing. Something always thrives in, in adversity, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. the cockroach, isn't it? The cockroach, the famous animal that's going to survive. Did you ever, did you ever see Narcos? Yes. About uh, um, that Escobar. horrible individual, yes, that horrible human who's murdered so many people. But, uh, yeah, there's a guy in that called Cockroach. And, and they're all lined up to be shot. And he somehow survives. Yes, of course. And the analogy is that it's said that a cockroach will survive. Nuclear holocaust. So who knows? You know, in a thousand years' time, after after some sort of great human-led holocaust, cockroaches will rule the world. You, you know, know? It, it's it's funny. <laughs> you, you hear people uh, about. You hear people talk about this impending, you know, global warming, and it's going to be the end of us all, and the the sea is full of plastic, and we're we're poisoning the air, and, and all the rest of it. And look, we absolutely are, and that has to be addressed immediately. But this this notion of that we have to save the planet, I think, is just a bit comical. Really, the planet will be fine. Yeah, we have to save ourselves. Yes, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's us that we have First to look and foremost, after. The like, most yeah, the, the most pressing task is the save salvation of ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the problem you have with that is, is you'll have all sorts of scientists saying this is what we need to do, and you'll have, of course, all sorts of religious people saying this is what we have to do, and all sorts of spiritual and mystical people saying this is what you have to do. And I'm trying to earnestly suggest that um, a spiritual and mythical uh, life is part of the solution. <laughs> People are going, he is definitely mad in the head. He has completely lost it. Because, see, too many people, as I said, tie in 
religion and spirituality as the same thing, but they're not. They're as I said, they're very they're very very different. Um, science and spirituality need to come together to find a solution. We're very ingenious. We're we have the spark of genius in us. We have something in us as a species. Like we went to the moon, you know. Um, like even the fact that we discovered the atom, and then I suppose that eventually led to the discovery of the nuclear bomb. We're so ingenious, you know. There's so much that we can do. In fact, I believe that there's nothing that we can't do. I really think. I think we have the ability to find solutions to all our problems. Um, with the right will and with the right funding, we can find probably cures to all the major diseases, for instance. And that's evolving all the time. There's new discoveries and all the rest. But we just refuse to reconcile ourselves with our dark nature. And that spills over into anger. And then that anger spills over into sort of mass conflict. No, absolutely. And I think when people get angry at other people, what they're angry at is the reflection of what they hate about themselves. And if you don't understand what you hate about yourself, you're never going to be able to appreciate why you hate somebody else so much. So I'm 100%. I couldn't agree with everything that you've said more, being perfectly honest. What was it that the white man hated so much in the native savage in quotes in places like America the Native Americans or or the African tribes yeah that was part of it yeah their simplicity and their yeah how how at peace they were with themselves and each other they weren't going to make war with the world no they didn't have to they weren't fighting over someone else's mineral resources yeah okay look some tribes were quite brutal in fairness let's let's not paint a rosy picture or you know, you only have to look at the Comanches in in in, uh, in the Native American Indians, for instance. They were quite brutal. I mean, they'd peel your scalp off with a knife yeah. and let you bleed out, you know, and then wear it on themselves as a, as a trophy. Um, but I think there is an aspect of that where we see in the savage uh, uh, a simple nature in ourselves that we somehow haven't reconciled with, and therefore we see it as something exterior. And we see it as something that's to be derided and something that's completely an- the antithesis of who we are as human beings. Because we're advanced, aren't we? And we're we're grown up and we're and we're scientific and we're knowledgeable, aren't we? we yeah, we're, we're not. We're all that. Yeah. So therefore, um, with all of that now that we have, we can't possibly encounter any difficulties because we have the solution to everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not knowing that actually um, we're we're as I said constantly on the threshold of either an ingenious breakthrough into a, a new phase of existence on the planet or some sort of appalling apocalypse of yeah. our own making. <laughs> it's, it's always one way or the other, isn't it? Yeah, of course, that's kind of present in myth too, isn't it? Like these, it's like a, Heaven and hell. There's a, well, there's an ongoing sort of theme in world mythology of the battle against light against darkness. And I think kind of that is... When you pare it down to its, its uh, core... That is just about the inner human nature, the darkness and the light that are vying against each other. Yeah, the, the yin and the yang, it's in, it's in every culture. I suppose so, you know. Anyway, not to be too pessimistic. The point is that we have the resources and the ingenious nature to find solutions to all our difficulties. Absolutely, and I would view so this... fact, you I, know. I would view this medium that we have now just two guys never met before today I just for the benefit of the people listening 
uh, I was chatting to a, a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, uh, Neil Riley. I hope to have him on. And I was asking him, you know, what what would he like to talk about, or what? Are, no, he asked. I asked him to come on the podcast, and he said, "Well, what would I talk about?" And I said, well, "What have you an interest in?" He's like, I've an interest in loads of things. And I was like, well, name someone. He was like, oh, I don't know, mythology. And I was like, right, mythology. Come on and chat about mythology. And he got a bit excited about it. But then he was kind of wary, wearisome of coming on and discussing it because he didn't really know as much about it. He didn't, you know, that kind of way. Um, yeah. So he, he opted not not to to do it. Um, and sorry, I've, I've lost my own train of thought. But in relation to, yeah, so I, I ended up, googling Irish mythology because he kind of put me on to he was like oh mythology that's something that I don't really know a lot about Google it found your name and said jeez he'd be a great guest and sent you uh, a message over Facebook and to a bit of back and forth here we are and that's fantastic that, that we live in a world that I could just find you mm. you know like yeah, that yeah. send you a message right. bit of back and forth and lo and behold within a wet week here you are and our conversation is going to be immortalised now when I put it online for the you know, for however amount, however many people to to listen to now Seven. in the future, <laughs> <laughs> thousand, but uh, million. <laughs> but it's gas, like because just on on the back of the the handful of recordings that I've made, uh, advertised for want of a better word on my own personal Facebook page, it's reached over three thousand people in twenty eight odd countries, like, and the reach that that has is mm. just phenomenal and you, you've what 40 odd thousand people following you on, on Facebook, Facebook like, yeah. that's that's enormous reach that's yeah. that's reached the world and that's seen great before. and so, so so just to continue with the theme of the black and white and the good and the dark um, or the light and the dark and the good and the bad there's also a lot of people out there who are using the internet as propaganda for their own hatred yes no absolutely so I suppose that's not to do with the technology. Well, the, the that's technology just to do too. with the the humans who are using it. Yes, it's not the technology that's to blame. Yes, um, it's just the technology enables some of these people to reach a wider audience than they might have reached if they were just printing pamphlets and handing them out. Yeah, which is what you would have done a generation ago. Of you course. Know? Never before have we had so much knowledge at our fingertips, and yet, never before has our attention span been so short. Yeah, well, I think that's changing, and I think that the internet hasn't—not that it hasn't caught on. It it hasn't been around long enough. For, it hasn't evolved to what it's going to be. It's still fluxing. So I think we're at the stage now of heightened. Give it to me in one hundred and forty characters. Mm-hmm. You know, look at this. It's a three-minute video. Three minutes. I don't have three minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of way. But I think that's that's a moment in time. I don't think that's the future of of the internet. I don't think the the dust has settled on what the internet is. Yeah, by a long constantly, stretch yeah well sure it's constantly who'd have thought even 10 years ago that you know most of what you were going to digest in terms of information would be done on a small device that you carry around in your pocket that you also make phone calls on yeah like in, in, in fairness yeah yeah. and the whole, the whole the whole selfie thing you know <laughs> selfies but again I, th- I think that'll be looked back and I think people will learn about selfies in history books but look isn't isn't that uh, a prime example of what we're what we've been talking about half the night is that the selfie reflects back at you what you want to see. Whereas the mythical well or the mirror reflects back the true the nature opposite. of yourself yeah. that you don't want to see. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's the selfie is a sort of a symbol of the non-mythical status of um, modern Western civilization. But th- that was in our mythology. Like uh, Narcissus is the only one that springs to mind because I'm not up to speed with Irish mythology or, or other mythologies. But that's the kind of colloquially in Ireland at least the Greek 
gods and myths are a bit more unfortunately they're closer to hand than our own mythology yeah uh, which is a shame in itself but the fact that the likes of narcissus i was going to say existed but the fact that stories of narcissistic people are there since at least the greek times would show that that's been a problem yeah. throughout our, yeah, yeah. our our history as a species so yeah it's not it's not a new thing the myth is there i, I suppose to try and teach and warn about these possible natures in people absolutely you know that we learned you know from from before the get go from when it was you know grunts and not really language there was pe- people realized that you couldn't you know fuck over people in your neighborhood without it coming full circle and, yeah. and kind of coming back to bite yeah, you yeah 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 where did you think where do you think this is a big question but where do you think it kind of went wrong historically like there's there's this idea that i've heard that St. Pat- when St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland he drove the druids out of Ireland and the shamans and and whoever else is there any credence to that from from the work that you've done, or does that make sense? Like it, to me, it makes sense, but I, you know, I'm not in a position to to know whether it was remotely true or not. Um, I yeah, not really sure. Because Christianity did, whether it intended to or otherwise, drive the the pagan cultures and the. Our own well, it did myth. to an extent, but don't forget that, um, in the early Christian Church in Ireland. There was actually a meeting of ways, like the two things what what existed previously and what came after kind of merged. We had a very peculiar, specific uh, form of Christianity, which is you know early Irish Celtic Christianity, which was kind of loosely based around the stuff that had happened, uh, or the 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 the, 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 the not necessarily the deities, but. I think the fact that there was no bloodletting when Patrick brought Christianity to Ireland is 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 an indication that uh, rather than him defiantly suppressing everything, um, that there was a sort of a, a merger. What really emerged in Ireland in early Christian times was a folk religion that had one foot uh, in Ireland and one foot in in in. I suppose in Rome, but not really in Rome because it more more in the sort of Christian Europe, as it were. Um, you know, we were very big on ritual, like patterns and, you know, um, repetitive um, saying of the rosary while counting beads, which are in effect stones, like the curb stones of Newgrange, you know. Somebody once said to me, Newgrange is like a giant set of rosary beads, you know. Do you make some sort of incantation as you go around it, stopping at each one, you know. And even with the crucifix, because there's a crucifix in Newgrange, which is its chamber. Like, the crucifix was a sacred symbol in Ireland three and a half thousand years before well, Patrick. Well, yes. four thousand years or so before Patrick arrived. Well, you know? predating Christianity, never mind Yeah, Patrick, and so. by a long, long way, you know. Um, And uh, I, I, I don't know, I... I I'm not an expert now, so not very well read on early Christian Ireland. But from what I understand of it, anyway, there was no martyrdom and there was no major bloodletting. Sorry, so, you mentioned bloodletting there a minute ago. I, just I mean, to well, I I mean, you know, there was no violence. Okay, you know, not that we're aware of. You know, Patrick arrived and and Christianity was kind of embraced almost by the Irish people who existed at the time, and I think in part because it allowed this merger. Um, this dovetailing, as it were, between what was there and what and and, and the new 
and the new system of beliefs. Look, uh, go, a very good example of that is the fact that sort of St. Bridget, who became one of the sort of main Irish saints, along with Patrick and Columbus, um, Columba, sorry, Columbus, <laughs> not the man who claimed to have discovered America. Um, you know, Bridget, before she was a saint, was a two-headed Adam goddess, daughter of the Dagda, chief god, who built Newgrange. There you right, go. I wouldn't mm, have known that. Yeah, no. there you go. But simple stuff like, you know, the fact that, you know, St. Patrick's Day ended up closely tied with the spring equinox and solstice and Christmas are effectively the same celebration, really, course, at the yeah, end of the day, yeah. you know. The death and rebirth of the sun, and like the, the literal sun and the, yeah. well, the, the sun in the sky and the, the sun of the, the father. So I don't so. think all that was an accident. I think Patrick may have been uh, quite an astute politician as much as he was a religious figurehead, you know, if he existed. Of course. And there's another four-hour uh, discussion, <laughs> which and that's another. What was the phrase about uh, can open worms everywhere, you know? <laughs> no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that tonight. But um, what are the other what are the other uh, can of worms that you've come across in your, in your years of studying this? And like what 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 have the things that you, oh, geez, what, what have you said the in the past that's been controversial or what are the things you're almost afraid to talk about? A couple of them have kind of popped up here tonight. Um, There's no glaring ones that No, you're... to be honest, I'm not more I'm not really the the one that kind of I I've been wary about for a long time is the high man and the high man is like a giant warrior figure that's it's a pattern in the roads. This is a a, a county sized thing, is it? Yeah, it's huge, it's like 14 miles high or whatever. Um it 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 happens to be a most extraordinary coincidence or set of coincidences that's really, really astonishingly interesting. And can you lay that out for people? Because again, I've I've seen I think a drawing of it probably on it, your, yeah, your your well, social the media basic platforms. background to it is that this is a figure that Richard Moore found in the roads. He 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 was looking at a map one day and he saw this figure and then he realized, well, you know, the knee is where Amergin is supposed to be buried, which is Mill Mountain Drahad, and Amergin was known as Amergin Bright Knee, <laughs> you know. And he said, well, it looks extraordinarily human. And then the area in which it's based was anciently called Ferrard, which means high man. And then the area in which it's located is basically the area of most significance in Irish mythology and in terms of the megaliths, because it's got the most significant ones within its border. So basically have this giant warrior who could be Lou, who gave his name to County Louth, or who could be Cucullin, who was a giant warrior who fought in Ford Water and he's standing in the Boyne River. Or he could be Nuadu because he's got his silver arm, you know, raised up into the Milky Way. Or he could be Amergin of the Bright Knee because he's buried at Millmount. Could be any number of sort of Irish, uh, mythical, heroic, uh, godlike, warrior-like characters. Seemingly based upon the constellation of Orion, which has always been seen, almost exclusively seen in ancient cultures around the world as as human, anthropomorphic, a hunter, uh, a god, a warrior, whatever have you, you know, whatever you have in yourself, as they say. Um, The reason for my reticence was because I kind of realised that maybe people kind of have the idea that I think the high man was actually 
um, something that was designed in prehistoric times, which I don't believe. Um, I don't even know if it's anything more than just an extraordinary set of coincidences. But um, the last chapter of my first book, Island of the Setting Sun, is devoted to the high man. And it outlines all of these curious things about all the place names and all the myths attached to that area and how it just all seems like one gigantic synchronicity. Um, and I think I've kind of learned to sort of conclude that you kind of got it. You have to take what you want from it. Um, it just happens to be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And do I believe it was intentionally put there? I don't think so. Obviously, people built roads, but they didn't design them in the shape of a warrior figure based on the constellation Orion, did they? Or did that just or happen d- accidentally? <laughs> but you know what? Yeah. Even in asking that question, it's actually fascinating. Because you, you want to dismiss out of hand the notion that it was designed intentionally. But then you're like, but the coincidences are extraordinary. So it just is what it is. And have you found that controversial, speaking about it? Or? Yeah, I have, yeah. And what's the pushback against that? That it's a bit ridiculous. But I mean, is it not a bit ridiculous that you would build something like Newgrange or the Pyramids back when they built it? That's, they're, they're ridiculous. That's preposterous, really. Like if, if there was no remains of Newgrange and then you started talking about this huge, big tomb and all these stones that would have had to have been brought from here, there and everywhere. That'd be equally ridiculous, would it not? It might be, yeah. I suppose it just depends on your perspective, you know. So I think that was one thing that I was reticent about talking about. Um, I, look, for a time, I would have been uncomfortable talking about the mythology because I was learning all this as I was going along. You understand? Of course. Like when I started all this 20 years ago, I I didn't have this knowledge of, especially of the mythology. I had the astronomical knowledge because I've, I've been an amateur astronomer since I was in primary school, since I was about eight years old. So I had a sufficient astronomical knowledge to help me through and I had a reasonable knowledge of some of the archaeology. So I needed to brush up on that too. But nowadays I'm kind of much more comfortable because I, one of the things that's been fundamental to my work, and I actually think you, you mentioned it earlier on, is I'm not here to say that I have answers to mysteries and I have answers to questions. And it's one of the things that a few of the experts have said to me that they like about my work is that you don't pretend that you have all the answers. You just ask very interesting and probing questions, which open all sorts of avenues of exploration. But you don't seem to reach definitive conclusions that quarrel with this evidence and dismiss other evidence. As some writers have the problem that they write a lot from ego, so... The problem is that they're putting forward certain postulations and theories. Their own agenda, say. Yeah, but which go very much in the face of accepted evidence. And I'm careful not to do that because I think if you're you're writing something that clearly contradicts all the evidence, then, well, what are you writing? You're writing fantasy. So then write a a work of fiction, write a novel. Yes. You know, if you want to call it non-fiction, then you have to, grounded in some facts so one of the things and I don't mind saying this to to your listeners one of the things that I really don't like is when I see uh, a non-fiction book a work of non-fiction that on the outside looks yeah this is a good premise it it promises this that and the other insight and to explore various mysteries and to try and give answers and it looks promising and then you're reading it and you realise there isn't 
any bibliography and there's no references in it. Yeah. So where are they no getting accountability. from? No accountability. In my books, like uh, particularly in Ireland, Ireland is like a thesis, right? In the chapter 12, which is the chapter about the high man, which might seem like a little bit of a far-fetched idea, right? There are 219 references. <laughs> so, But that's what you want in something far-fetched. So, yes, you mightn't agree with some of what I say, but go and follow the sources yourself and have a look at where I'm coming from, at least. Yeah. But if you write a book that claims to be non-fiction and you've no... Some books don't even have a bibliography. Yeah. Like, at least if you have a bibliography, it's a good start. But it's not enough, in my opinion, to list 20 books that you claim your, your book is based on. The reader, the intellectual reader, will want to follow some of the sources. They'll want that deeper. He says this here, but, but why does he say it? Where does he get that from? And you go, oh, oh, he gets it from the Dinshenicus. Okay, I understand that now. Yeah. And they, they, they then can go re- and read that themselves if they so wish. But I find it very reassuring to have references because not that I'll do my due diligence but I know that if I let's say Google your name and if I say you know Anthony Murphy criticisms and put that into Google if you've put in dodgy references or if there's no references you'll throw up someone giving out about you yeah, do you know that kind of way and so then, you lose integrity you know of course but there are enough unfortunately in the sphere of mythology and ancient history there are an awful lot of fly-by-nighters um, not to, not and I'm not putting down fellow authors. I have a lot of fellow authors in this field that I have enormous respect for. Mm. Right? There are some people who, let's say, are a little bit careless with the references and the facts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they've written very popular work. I'm not going to name any, by the way. Just so don't <laughs> ask me to. They've written very popular works, and they've managed to dupe a lot of people into believing that what they're saying is factual. But in essence, you're not able to follow the trail because there is no trail. And um, how can you have any standing as an author if you don't? You have to reference what you say, even if you're... So if somebody disagrees with the, the, the line of theory that I've developed on a particular monument or in relation to a particular myth, or if I've suggested that something might be cosmological in origin and they disagree with that, that's okay. They could disagree with me. They, what they can't say is that, well, you, you haven't quoted the yeah, reference. You're just, you're just spoofing. Yeah. And they can, word for word, when I've directly quoted stuff, or if I've paraphrased, they can go to that and say, oh, actually, he has quite faithfully represented that. So at least that's a a, a merit badge in your defence, as it were. Yeah. Because when you put yourself out in public, one of the things that happens is you attract people who like what you write and like what you do but you also attract detractors of course attracting detractors there we go again <laughs> uh, all of these words that we're coming up with tonight so one of your listeners we, we need to challenge the listeners to come up with a word that means the ology of everything a combination of archaeology anthropology geology cosmology mythology um all of that stuff in one word ending in ology please yeah no, if, that'd be nice. does that word exist already <laughs> Um, and then we we can call you that with ist at the end of it, uh, yeah. whatever it is ist. Yeah, yeah. The thing is to remain faithfully true to yourself. It doesn't mean to follow your beliefs down a black hole, um, and it 
definitely don't. I had a guy who approached me one day and he said, I want you to have a look at something. I have a theory about Newgrange. So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. And as the OPW guides at Newgrange will tell you, everybody has a theory about Newgrange. <laughs> Almost everybody has a theory. And this guy seemed like a very sound, rational guy. He said, I've, I have it done as a sort of a, a draft paper. Would you have a read of it? I had a read of it. It was about an alignment. I'm not going to get into specifics. I don't want to identify him. But um, the long and short of it was that this is all in a time frame. I need to move the time frame of Newgrange to fit my theory. Ah, so although the archaeologists days. say it was built in 3150 BC, I needed it to be built in 2600 BC. Yes. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm sitting here going, so you're overturning all of the evidence for a theory. So your theory is nonsense, basically. But I didn't want to say that. Of course, I didn't yeah. say that because I'm not that. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't put down people just for the sake of putting them down. And I'm not really egotistical in that regard. I'm, I'm. The one thing I'm very careful about in my work is not, as I said, to pretend that I have all the answers or that I'm some sort of guru or something. Yet people like it, and yes, I have a following, and yes, I have quite a faithful following. Um, some of the people who follow me are, are nutcases. Yeah, headbangers. Well, if you ten thousand, if you've multiples of ten thousands of people, you know, following you, they're in there. But you know what? Um, in their everyday lives, they're probably quite decent people, and they're probably they're probably okay people to to talk to and all that. And actually, I can think of a few people who are a bit off the wall, off the hand, but they're they're nice people to talk to. They just have some crazy ideas. Yeah, which is fine. Who's right and who's wrong? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, specifically in relation to the spirituality which is one of the most controversial aspects of my work, because spirituality is controversial full stop. Oh, yeah, it's a loaded term even, the word spirituality. Is the idea of the afterlife, you know? And the only way we're going to find that out is when we're dead, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I'm kind of hedging my bets. And as I keep saying, I'm much more comfortable now to say that I will die as an agnostic with a feeling that there is something. Yeah. Right based on evidence of afterlife experiences that people have had. Um, I'm prepared to to go with that and to hedge my bets on that than to, to die either as a complete atheist or, or as, say, a devout Christian, saying that Jesus is my only salvation. And I know that's heresy to some people. I know that, that might upset some people. Look, I don't, I don't say it to, to cause upset. That's the important thing. You always remember that it's... I remember once I learned a very, a very, a very interesting lesson. I, I gave a talk one day. Uh, to it was only a small group, maybe twenty five people, and I spoke a little bit denigratingly about the influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland. After which talk, I was uh, praised by a lot of people, and then one particular individual took me aside and castigated me, saying that how and this woman was completely right how can you expect us to have respect for your work if your work depends on the denigration of somebody's beliefs in order to be accepted and initially i kind of argued i said well i'm not really denigrating i'm just talking about facts and this that and the other and then i kind of went home with it and i realized do you know what she is actually true that there are more polite and um um not light-hearted, but there are more... Diplomatic, maybe? Yeah, that's a good word. There are more diplomatic ways to say what you wanted to say without offending the Christian in the room. 
You know what I mean? I'm I finding that, myself getting very, getting much more diplomatic as I as I kind of age and become a little bit wiser, maybe. Because as much as we say that religion has been at the core of a lot of conflict in the world, the hatred of one religion of again of one religion against another has also been a, a major problem for us as a species. So I learned a lesson from that, and the lesson was, look, who's to say I won't convert to Christianity like. Cormac McGart, you know, you know the first Christian king because he 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 converted just before he died. You know, who's to say I won't? I can't say right now I won't. I don't think it's likely to be honest with you, being a an agnostic and having been through all I've been through, I can't see it happening. But I shouldn't rule it out, and I certainly shouldn't um, denigrate those who do believe. Um, like who's right? Well, that's it. Because maybe, may, maybe at the end of it all, they'll be proven right, and I'll be proven wrong. And you'll be at the pearly gates eating your words. <laughs> yes, St. Peter will be handing me a large slice of humble pie <laughs> and, and saying, eat this. <laughs> uh, Anthony, I've taken up enough of your time. We're at the what? Just show you the two and a half hour mark. Wow. I'd have you back in an absolute heartbeat. Seems just like for about the... 45 minutes we've been talking. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> and that's the, the nature of these stories. I mean, we've barely, we haven't even touched on on Irish mythology, really. Uh, yeah, I haven't you know, really we've, spoken we've to you about s- some of the... We've skirted it. But yeah. I, I I c- been... th- 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 this is exactly the type of conversation I was hoping to have with you. Yeah. Um, because been... I, it's an intro... I suppose this episode is almost like an, intro- an introduction for people to you and your work and the importance of just the our, our ancient history and the significance of mythology and... like. Here's one that I'm going to throw at you, and I might be putting you a bit in the spot now, but you said there not so long ago that when you started out on your journey, you weren't keen to kind of talk to people about it because you were only kind of learning, you are only finding your feet. And an analogy to that is a white belt shouldn't be setting up a karate, you know, a club. So that kind of way. So you, you yeah, wait, you wait until you progress analogy, to black yeah. belt level, and then maybe, you know, maybe you, mm-hmm. you, you start your, your club. Um, what, looking back... Like, so there's people who, who are listening to this or maybe who, like myself, have kind of half started their journey down this rabbit hole, vague enough as, it, as it's been. What are the pitfalls to avoid, say? What, what, like if, in hindsight, looking back, what do you wish you'd spent more time on, less time on? Is there, aside from your, your body of work, the, the books, the Facebook page and everything else, and I'll, I'll give, I'm going to ask you for kind of links and descriptions for all of them now in a minute, but is there other, is there documentaries that are found on, to be found on YouTube? Are there, you know, oh, story books? Yeah. But what's the good stuff though? Because it's, it's kind of hard to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, uh, well, uh, first of all, um, there's a few aspects to what you just said was, was uh, in terms of, um, you know, if people are starting out on their journey, as it were, and they want to know what to avoid and what to look for, I think one of the greatest things a person can do in their journey is just to make sure that, first of all, they seek in themselves what it is that um, follow the, follow your bliss, as Joseph Campbell would have said. Seek within yourself what it is that actually makes you truly happy, right? Um, don't denigrate other people and don't definitely don't um don't focus on the negatives and don't focus on what's wrong you know because um that's uh, i think a big part of um the difficulty that uh, we keep going on about uh, tonight about 
the journey that I think collectively, but also individually, that we have to undertake as a society is, you know, uh, if it's taking you into uh, difficult territory in terms of um, a denigration of other people or other people's beliefs or whatever, then I would say just steer away from it for the time being. What you're basically looking for essentially on your journey is the light. You're looking for that light in the darkness, that Newgrange um, solstice moment when in the cold and dark interior of the she, you're seeing a brilliant golden warm light emerge in through the darkness. As I call it in one of my works of fiction, like a sword of brilliance piercing the darkness, you know. Um, a light at the end of the tunnel, save. Well, sort of, yeah. Um, nice to focus earnestly on yourself and it's just very difficult because that's... that's 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 such a sort of very non-specific thing to say and it's very difficult as you say it's like a white belt telling someone how they become a black belt you know like might necessarily be in a position to dispense uh, psychotherapeutic advice for people um but just from my own experience um is you have to you have to ask why you're doing it in the first place you're doing it because you love it. You're doing it because you're enjoying it. Or you're doing it because you think you'll grow from it. Great. But if you find yourself in conflict with people when you're doing it, then maybe it's not just the right way of going about it or you're not necessarily on the right path, you know? That's a that's a warning, say, if you're if what you're learning or... If, if what you're learning or consuming is distancing yourself from people or maybe putting you at odds with other people. Yeah, or, or putting you into conflict with people specifically. You may want to put yourself, you may want to put distance between yourself and other people. Um, uh, if you're if you're engaging in a shamanic journey, as it were, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like the shaman who distances themselves from their community while they basically talk to themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know, because yeah, you're having no, a conversation with yourself, as it were. But I think we're, we're missing that in, a, in our modern society. And I think... It's this is a recurring theme across nearly all the podcasts that I've done so far. This idea that we don't talk to ourselves anymore because as soon as you leave the room to to you know go to the toilet, I'm on my phone and I'm googling whatever it is that we were talking about. Or if you're in a waiting room, or if you're on a walk, or if you're on a drive, you're listening to a podcast, you're listening to the radio, you're 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 constantly you're on all mm-hmm. the time. We've no we don't have the time for introspection anymore. Yeah. And I don't meditate or practice yoga, and maybe that's something some people will want to do. But my form of meditation is, as I said earlier several times, is to be at peace in that moment, where whether it be watching a sunset or being by the riverside or, you know, being at a monument and finding myself alone and just having contemplative and introspective moments, you know. Um. Yeah, I didn't realise I was here to, to dispense spiritual advice, which is really interesting, <laughs> you know. My latest book actually has been categorised on Amazon as Celt, I think, Celtic Spirituality. And if people ask me what category would I put it into, I actually mightn't have known, but it was just automatically found its way into that category. And yet, I started off really writing about the astronomy, first and foremost. And now the mythology has drifted towards spirituality in in essence. But I, I think I've laid that out throughout the whole interview, what I meant by spirituality. It's not this mystical uh, voodoo stuff, you know. 
Um, it's more just to do about the journey of self-discovery. The other aspect of your question was, you know, if people are interested, where do they start? It's a very good one. But you just please avoid the conspiracy theory stuff, you know. <laughs> There's enough flat earthers and alien <laughs> stuff going on. Um, notwithstanding the fact that I have a documentary online about the high man, which is my most popular video, actually. And okay, I left so, it there because I just figured, look, it's an interesting subject. It is fascinating. But I kind of I think I kind of take it too seriously. And, and that documentary was made oh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, you know. Um, but if people are interested in. It depends. OK, so obviously you're going to probably I would have to recommend my own recommend my own work. So I have three sort of major works of non-fiction: Island of the Setting Sun, Newgrange Monument, Immortality, and Mythical Ireland: New Light on the Ancient Past. They're all published by the Liffey Press. Island of the Setting Sun is out of print. You'll get a second-hand second edition copy for about one hundred and sixty dollars. You'll get a second-hand first edition for about two thousand dollars. Believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, they're quite valuable. Um, the others are still available, and Newgrange I think is twenty four ninety nine, and Mythical Ireland is twenty nine ninety nine. If you're interested in the astronomy and particularly the ancient astronomy, the works of Martin Brennan are very interesting, uh, particularly the Stones of Time. And Brennan was an artist, and he drew all of the carvings and then tried to interpret them cosmologically and astronomically. Fascinating work. If you're interested in mythology, actually a very good place to start, which is kind of real easy sort of slip you into it easily is the Oxford Dictionary of Celtic Mythology which is edited by James McKillop and is widely available and an awful lot of Celtic mythology is Irish you know there's some Welsh and some sort of Britonic stuff in it and some European stuff but it's by and large there's an awful lot of Irish stuff there are an awful lot of reprints of older books about Irish mythology the likes of Charles Squire um um Oh, can't think of his name. Uh, if the names come too to late, text them on. I'll people put them in the notes. Might be so. interested in reading Thomas Kinsella's translation of the Tawn, for instance. Um, there are lots of little collections of Irish myth uh, written by various people. There's Lady Gregory's translations of Cuchulain and, um, you know, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, Gods and. I can't even remember the title of it yet because my my head's fried at this stage. Uh, Lady Gregory's stuff. Uh, online, there's a lot of... Yeah, you have to be careful. There's an awful lot of people um, who have the appearance of sane intellectualism and gravitas, but who, who maybe... The problem with, say, YouTube is that you don't have the references and the sources, so... You're just watching somebody or listening to somebody and you're assuming that they're an expert, but you're not necessarily following the trail. You know, that sort of Of way. course, yeah. I've, uh, this I've, is I've something... done lots of YouTube videos, actually, as it happens. So my own channel is Mythical Ireland. Uh, I've, I've done lots of uh, videos about various aspects of the mythology and the astronomy that people can follow. So Yeah, so that just to, to be clear for people, that's Mythical Ireland uh, YouTube channel. So go into YouTube, search Mythical Ireland. You'll find yourself yeah. subscribe or and actually, like and comment. Just go to youtube.com forward slash Mythical Ireland. Perfect, and that'll yeah. bring you straight to the page. Yeah. Um, I meant to mention it earlier, but the conversation kind of went another direction. Are you familiar with Graham Hancock? Yes. What's your views on Graham Hancock? Because he kind of skirts that line of expert yeah. spoofer, for want of a better term. Uh, he's very interesting. Mm. And I think he has opened up lots of interesting avenues of research. And his work is very well written and very well researched. 
and very well referenced, by the way. Okay. Um, That's encouraging to hear because I haven't gone down. I've enjoyed him. Um, like I, the first of his books that I encountered was Heaven's Mirror: Search for a Lost Civilization, and I liked the premise of the book, and I really liked the imagery, and I liked the way he put it together. However, the theory itself is quite controversial. So yeah, look, take it with a pinch of salt, but don't avoid. He's not one of those people I would avoid. Definitely not. He's fascinating. Fingerprints of the Gods is a magnificent work. Um, you mightn't agree. Look, you can read somebody and not agree with their postulations and the avenues that they go down. I think that's quite important that you do that, isn't it? So that it's you, to have the capacity to read somebody, but also not to be either a devout fan or a severe critic, to just be able to stand back and go, okay, yeah, that, that, that makes a certain amount of sense. And then in another page or chapter say, hmm, don't really go along with that, you know? Yeah, of course. You know, there's a very good book uh, by two authors called Uriel's Machine. Uh, Robert Lomas and Christopher Knight and it's very it's very interesting I don't agree with their ultimate premise that there was a one size fits all machine that you could use to determine astronomical um, phenomena and azimuths and all the rest but however it's a fascinating work yeah it's really interesting you know like you know yourself like even Jung who, who has a huge following also has a huge um uh, number of people out there who denigrate his work and think he was a a, a mystic and a, and a bit of a spoofer and all the rest so it's just to have the capacity don't i wouldn't avoid people just because not everything they say is in agreement with the evidence or not ever well it's not it's not in agreement with the evidence maybe not in agreement with your own viewpoints you know i, I think personally i think that's one of the biggest problems that we have these days is that we don't look into people who we disagree with say and we don't we don't search for where look, you know where by an, from. the the way I I look at it is you'll see you'll see authors and again I'm not naming names but you'll see authors and books and you read and you read and you read and you go hang on a second well that's not true and, and what's that based on and there's no references and you see untruths stacked up against you know a dodgy uh, dodgy theory and dodgy speculation and then you realise after a while no this isn't for me. However, if you see an author like Hancock, is very lucid, as I say, very well researched, very well written, very well referenced, who happens to make a few leaps of faith and puts forward a few theories that maybe are a little bit beyond, a bit of a stretch of the imagination. To me, that doesn't make a nonsense of his work. Yes, it just shows that he's a, he has, he's a, has a pair, he's a thinking basically, man. and a thinking man, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's fascinating. To me, he's opened up. And he's created quite a lot of controversy, and I think he sold a lot of books on the back of that controversy. Um, don't know if he necessarily starts out to be controversial. Uh, there are some people who are just like that, you know. Yeah. But then, for instance, you have the likes of Eric von Daniken, whose work was very popular and popularized the idea of, you know, alien civilizations using um, ancient sites as um, navigational beacons, beacons and using the Nazca lines in Peru as landing pads and all the rest. Like, that's a stretch of the imagination <laughs> for me, I'm sorry to say, you know. But there's a man who sold, sold millions of books, you know. It's like... Whatever you're into, as I say, one one man's poison is another man's elixir. You know. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, just don't uh, read everything. I think you should. I think that's the way you should approach everything, even if you're reading a scientific paper. 
I read this tome by Witzel. I can't remember uh, what what is. Uh, he's got initials, but he's an expert in world mythology. He's written dozens and dozens of books and papers in his career and seems to be an expert. I read good parts of this big chunky doorstep of a book and I was fascinated by it. And then I went online and I read the reviews of his book on Amazon. And I discovered that something that was very true. He breaks world mythologies into two separate groups. Okay. And basically, um, is it is a little bit of a racist undertone to it. Right. That there were certain sort of darker skinned savage tribes who, in his vision, had sort of less developed concepts and their mythology was of a a, 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 a less complex nature, etc., etc., and a lot of people were accusing him of basically creating a sort of a racist theory of mythology. So it just gave me an insight on it because I hadn't thought about that when I was reading through it. I was just so fascinated by some of the things which are uh, refer to aspects of Irish mythology that I've written about in my books. I I, I didn't stop to think about that, asp- that aspect of it. Um, some people think that he's created a racist division, as it were that actually isn't there, you know, which is one criticism. So I suppose you always have to be careful. But if you're earnestly interested in a subject, you won't just read one book about it, will you? Of course, yeah. And you won't just read one person's. Yes. You know? Like, I wonder how many students of Jung have actually read Freud's work. (laughs) Yeah, because Jung was... And vice versa, by the way, because Freud has such a huge following, much more so than Jung. How many Freud followers have read Jung's work? Because I've seen online debates about it in which Freudians absolutely poo-poo Jung. But I wonder how many of them have actually read his work. Or are they just basing that on something they read by somebody who had read Jung's work? Well, so. I think Graham Hancock's, uh, one thing that he often mentions is a lot of his, he's caught out a lot of his detractors of having, who've criticised his work. He's found them out basically as not having read his work. Mm. So if you're going to criticise something, you have to be... At the very least, willing to read it to start yeah. with, you know. <laughs> oh no, absolutely. Let's be yeah. honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So read it with an open mind, and I, I, I'm the same. There's very few books that I've bought that I've made the intention to buy that I've bought and kind of become really disheartened by and disappointed by and kind of put them down, and maybe gave away to St Vincent de Paul or sold on or whatever. Mostly, what I read, there's there's nuggets in them. That's a reflection of you more so than the list of books that you uh, could put Well, up. maybe, maybe. There's some nuggets in Hancock, uh, for instance, you know. Hancock is, I, I think, is largely... Look, he's interesting. So, yeah, somebody can be interesting and yet talk shite, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, look... There's, there's, you, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying just saying he's interesting doesn't necessarily put him on a pedestal. Um, there was a time when I thought uh, he was a bit of a genius... But I kind of, we all have our flaws, you know, and we're all subject to these little um, flaws of our human nature. And uh, Hancock ain't flawless, just put it that way. But his work is fascinatingly interesting. Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be inclined to agree. And opens up an awful lot of avenues that maybe weren't opened up by the, uh, the mainstream academia. And that's not to say they're wrong, you know. There's enough people in the world putting down academia without us starting, you know. No, no, absolutely. So the the books, I'd put up a list of the books. And you name the, the books out there again. Island of the Setting Island Sun. Island of the Setting Sun, In Search of Ireland's Ancient Astronomers. Your most recent one then. Oh, sorry, the next one then the is... The next one, Newgrange Monument to Immortality. 
Your latest creation then Mythical Ireland New Light On the Ancient Past The YouTube channel is YouTube.com Forward slash Mythical Ireland And same for Facebook Facebook.com Forward slash Mythical Ireland Are you on Instagram Twitter Yep Same thing Instagram.com Forward slash Mythical Ireland Twitter Same thing again Yeah Are you on Patreon Yes Brilliant Do you know the URL Or if we just search it's, Patreon it's, Mythical Ireland You'll come up I'm sure. not entirely sure Whether I have Patreon.com Forward slash Mythical Ireland I think I have But if you go on to Patreon.com You can search for Mythical Ireland And you'll get me Okay perfect um, Yeah So we all need support For what we're doing You know No absolutely And I for one I'm absolutely going to support you As I've started Only recently to do To support all the other guys Like yourself Who fill me full of And you know what The great thing about Patreon is Is if you haven't got a lot of money, you can pledge a dollar a month. Yeah, well, that's, that's which my is go-to. not a lot of money. That's my go-to. But if if I get sufficient one dollar a month patrons uh, over time, there'd be no limit to what I I can do. You know, and in I terms of the work that I've been doing for people listening to give them some sort of an idea of where you're coming from. There, everything that you've done to date the books the YouTube channel the blogs the the you know reporting outside Newgrange all the mm-hmm. TV appearances everything even this coming to meet me and having this conversation everything that you've been done has been on top of presumably you know a, a 40 day job. odd yeah, yeah day yeah. job got Mythical Ireland is what I describe as a glorified hobby yeah that I hope to turn into a vocation yeah no absolutely very soon if I can if I can make it happen but I've been doing it for well the best part of 20 years so you know, I'm hoping to make that breakthrough sometime soon. But it is a passion and a hobby and uh, something I do in my spare time. And I've largely done on a non-commercial basis. Yeah, well, listen, I think you could be at a, a kind of a critical mass point now, hopefully. Ah, and hopefully. you could just be on the cusp of basically breaking it. Because all it would take is some poxy celebrity somewhere to pick well, up on a bit of your work. I'm hoping you know? off the lead will will, 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 will will make me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen. The, the whole and it's a, it's a semi slogan of the of the off the lead mentality is that if you're only listening, you don't get you, you're not getting the point. Yeah. If, if you're only listening, you're not getting it. You you have to enact this off the lead mentality. And if if all you do is recommend it and uh, Anthony's work to other people, start the conversation, provoke the conversations, have have the conversations with people, and like what you alluded to earlier, that we all played our part in bringing down our the economy we all in turn will play our part in bringing Ireland and the rest of the world you know to a better place than where we are now correct yeah 100% so listen it's an absolute pleasure uh, chatting to you we just just show you the three hour mark and I'd love to get you on again I won't hold you to making an appearance no again problem. but absolutely love to get you uh, back on again it's been an absolute thanks pleasure thanks for having me so, thank you